Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. If this is new to you, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu, and you'll see all the previous ones. There have been about 380 of them, organized and categorized in various ways. Also, we have a new menu up there. What's it called, Irene? It's some... At a glance, I think it's called at a glance, which summarizes everything that you'll find on the site. This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there is a donate button on every page, and there's also a donate page, which explains things in a little bit more detail. So my guest today is Jeffrey Martin. Batgap junkies may remember Jeffrey from the uh, group uh, discussion we did at Sophia University about two years ago. Jeffrey is at Sophia University, and um, this is the first time I've interviewed him one-on-one. And Jeffrey sent me a rather long introduction, uh, but he also has a mercifully brief introduction. So I'm going to read you the merciful one, and then if and then maybe Jeffrey can get a little merciless and elaborate on that. Um, so Jeffrey is known as the leading academic expert on ongoing, persistent, not temporary, forms of non-symbolic experience. And he'll explain in a minute what that means. Um, he's the creator and coordinator of the world's largest scientific study on persistent forms of non-symbolic experience. And he's a tireless advocator at major academic conferences, universities, and public venues for the benefits of ongoing non-symbolic experience and the fact that his research suggests that anyone can get there quickly, safely, and easily. So we'll discuss that. And uh, But Jeffrey, before we do that, what would you like to um, say by way of elaboration on, on your bio, like who you are, just so people get a sense of you know who they're talking to here? Well, it's nice to be with you. As you know, I'm a huge fan of you. We see uh, we see each other every now and then when I visit Fairfield to do mm-hmm. research. You were instrumental, really, in helping me understand the landscape of Fairfield, Iowa. I don't know if your viewers realize quite what the political crazy landscape it is in, uh, in Fairfield with the big TM University there and all sorts of different spiritual factions and stuff like that. So I've been super grateful. Mm-hmm you over the years for really helping me to sort of understand who out of the zillions of people there I should really focus on and all of that. Mm-hmm. And of course, you have, I think, the best archive. I sent out an email on this yesterday to all of our lists and stuff. And I said, you know, this is really an arc. This is the an unprecedented archive that you've put together and that you're continuing to put together. You and Irene both. I know you both worked very hard on it. So it's really an honor to be a part of it. Well, thanks. It's an honor to have you on. So, Jeffrey, thank you for those appreciative words. Um, so, uh, tell us what you've been doing. Let me doing. answer your question now. Yeah, why don't you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just really wanted to say thank you first. Um, so, I have a very broad background. It goes all the way back to media, computers, technology. I've built quite a number of different businesses, uh, you name it. And around 2006, um, I'd really done, I think, everything that I thought I should do to really be very happy. You have your PhD in something from Harvard, right? And you also have a degree in something from the California Institute of Integral Studies, right? Yeah, we'll I'll slide forward to those. 
not well, long after 2006. Um, so well, don't let me rush you, actually. I mean, if there's, not, I, I thought you might have already skipped over that, but go ahead, continue. I, I went back to school because I, I was really, you know, I'd really done everything that I felt like I should do mm -hmm. in order to be super happy. Um, and I wasn't unhappy, but it seemed like there were an awful lot of people that were more happy than I was. And, you know, I felt like I'd worked really, really hard at it. And so I just decided to make a life change at that point. And I basically got out of, it took me in some cases a couple of years to wind out of it, but I basically got out of the businesses and everything else that I was doing um, and technology and whatever else and went in the direction of uh, studying PNSE. Hmm. I get the yeah. sense that you actually managed to make some pretty decent money in, in, during your business phase because you seem to now just be able to fly all over the world and do whatever you want to do and not worry about the cost. Yeah, I've been very, very blessed to um, really be able to fund everything myself. You know, most academics are kind of, I mean, they're kind of in a rough spot. Uh, they depend on grants that often aren't what they want to research. I remember I went back to school at, at Harvard for psychology and neuroscience and CIS, as you mentioned, for transformative studies, really to learn qualitative research and transdisciplinary research, which is kind of the leading form of scholarship in the academy. It's only mm -hmm. that I know of taught one place in America. It's more common in Europe. Mm -hmm. And one of the first thing, my very first, they have this like this washout class at Harvard um, in the graduate program, which is like a, your introduction to research class or whatever. And kind of got the sense that like the professor's job was to get rid of as many people uh, as they could, because there weren't that many of us. <laughs> but weren't, there weren't that many of us to start with. There were like 12 of us or something mm -hmm. to start with. And there weren't that many of us that were there at the end. Um, and I never forget, like, he opened the class by basically saying, you know, if you're planning on having a career where you're going to research what you want to research or whatever else, he's like, let me just dissuade you from that right now. <laughs> you know, you're going to be at the mercy of grant sources and funding sources, even if you're me, even if you're at a famous institution that I'll ensure you almost never get to work mm. on what it is that you're most interested in and all of that. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, I'm going to be spending my own money to yeah. <laughs> from this point forward to research what I want to. So yeah, I mean, I was, I've been so incredibly fortunate. And then in recent years, you know, we've had, we've basically been able to crowdfund our largest experiment. Uh, and so that's been really great. It's really a bit like a citizen-supported science project. So anyway, I went to, yeah, like you say, I went to uh, CIS and Harvard and then I basically, during that process, was trying to figure out who are the happiest people on earth, you know, who are the people that have the highest well-being. Eventually, I learned to separate happiness from well-being and, you know, some nuanced stuff like that. Uh, and it wound up being, I wound up narrowing it down to the population of people who come on your show, essentially. <laughs> Those types of people, obviously, you mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, many of your many, I mean, there's plenty of people on your show that have been researched. Yeah, I mean, uh, you were saying blah blah, and one of the things I thought, Gary Weber. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, and Gary's talked about it, you know, so I can, it's an anonymous thing if you participate in our research, but uh -huh. some people have broken their anonymity. Yeah. Uh, so Gary Weber has, uh, you know, Kenneth Folk and Ann Ingram has, and, you know, some others have. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there have been quite a few people, actually, that have been on your show that have uh, participated in our research, especially the early phase of the research, which involved about 1,200 people. Yeah. So let me ask you two questions. One is, at what point did you yourself 
if you did, and I'm sure you have, think, okay, I've, I've talked to enough of these people, I'm going to do some kind of practice myself on a regular basis to try to experience what they're experiencing. That's, that's question number one. And secondly, you haven't actually said very clearly that, well, you sort of have, what this research is, what you're trying to discover. I think you're basically trying to discover the fountain of happiness, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I was really, exactly, just trying to say, okay, I'm not as happy as I think I should be or could be. Like, who is and how do I become them? Right. That was the original quest. Yeah. And then it's just sort of gone off in this crazy direction that I would just would have never imagined um, with this population of people with, you know, whatever we want to call it in the popular nomenclature, people who claim to be enlightened or mm-hmm. non-dual or transcendental consciousness, God consciousness, unity consciousness, persistent mystical experience. Um, shamanic, like persistent shamanic ecstasy. I mean, we have hundreds of terms cataloged from people, as I know you do as well. You've heard, mm-hmm. you know, endless descriptions of this from so many different perspectives, just like I have. It's one yeah. of the things that makes me so excited to talk to you today. <laughs> and every time, like, you know, you probably, I think you know, like every time I come to Fairfield, I try to hook up with you. Yeah, yeah. Because and, it's and such we, an interesting conversation. And we've hooked up at the Sand Conference a couple of times too. Um, yeah. Yeah, now in my case, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to learn to meditate when I was a teenager, you know, like almost 50 years ago, and it worked for me, and I stuck with it, and, uh, you know, been doing a form of meditation over many years. In your case, um, you know, you have kind of got interested in this stuff a little bit later in life, and you immediately plunged in with interviewing a whole lot of different people. I mean, if I were interviewing hundreds of people at the point where I was just deciding what to do, I, I think it might have confused me because there would have been so many choices. Um, so in your case, did you get a little overwhelmed by all the possibilities out there, or did it become clear to you fairly soon that you know you personally should do X, Y, Z because that would be the most effective thing for you? a good question. So I was, um, I guess I would say that I was very cautious when I first started to want to research this from an academic perspective. Um, and so I went to CIS first. Um, and it wasn't until I was at CIS for a while that I realized that I needed the psychology and neuroscience piece as well. Uh, and so I, I think around 2008, maybe I started uh, going to the program at Harvard. Um, and, but I knew right from the start, I didn't have to, you know, wait for Harvard. I knew right from the start that a lot of people had tried to research this in the academic world and they'd really had their research quite invalid, quite invalidated. Uh, you know, people, people basically just, um, the uh, really academic psychology and neuroscience and stuff, I would say because of kind of the anti-materialist claims that are so common in this population, it was kind of disregarded as uh, maybe like a psychopathology or whatever else. And in fact, initially, I wasn't entirely convinced that, you know, it wasn't a psychopathology, that people weren't self-deceptive or whatever else. And a lot of the early part of the research, uh, if you would have encountered me in those days, you would have found a very skeptical Mm -hmm. researcher who was really trying to figure out, is this psychopathological or is, you know, what's being claimed here, uh, you know, really legit and positive for someone's life or whatever else. I didn't take anything on face value. But one of the great things about coming at it from an academic standpoint is that 
um, I had to wade into it in the most credible way as possible. So I went around and I talked to a lot of the leading lights in, in consciousness space and the psychology academy and stuff like that. Um, and some others that were in the developmental side of it and, and other like basically other major leading lights in psychology. And I said, how can I research this in a way that, you know, three or four years from now, I was a little overly optimistic in how long it would take. <laughs> I'm still at it. Uh, but you know, we're three or four years from now when I'm starting to write this stuff up, you just, you know, it isn't just immediately shot down. Mm. Uh, you know, I can't get it presented anywhere at any leading conferences or, you know, nobody will want a book chapter on it or yeah. you know, other publications or whatever. And so that led to some really good advice from them that narrowed it down right away. And they basically said, well, you need to find people. Uh, if you were trying to convince me, if you were trying to, you know, speak at, a, you know, the society that I run or publish in the journal, I, you know, I'm the editor of or whatever, whatever their thing was. Uh, what you'd have to convince me of is that you really built your population very carefully. And so I would want to see things like, uh, do they have a community that validates them? You know, is there is there a, a very sort of well-documented uh, set of knowledge on what it is that they're claiming to personally experience? And then do they have a community that validates that uh, experience and that basically agrees, yes, this person may actually experience this thing that's been carefully documented. So that, of course, led to the world's major religions and spiritual systems and stuff like that, people that have written that stuff up uh, over hundreds or thousands of years, and people who have a bunch of teachers uh, that, ha that claim to, you know, experience it in some form. Uh, and so our research really began there. So it was, I didn't, I didn't like view this broad smorgasbord. Uh, I actually had a very, very narrow scope at the beginning, or which I was kind of charged with by these folks to just kind of save my butt politically mm. uh, later on. And so to answer your question about um, the, when I came to it myself or uh, what, you know, what practices I started or whatever else, or when I decided that maybe this wasn't psychopathological, <laughs> I would say that by about, uh, by about 2009, 2010, um, you know, we had our, I'm sure we'll talk about it, we had our continuum model with like the different classifications of this experience and stuff like that. And I, these people had taken, well, one of the things that we did in the very early days is I just gave them tons of gold standard psychological measures. And so these are like the online tests or the pencil and paper tests that people sometimes get when they're getting employment or if they took an intro to psychology class, probably they had to get credit from their professor and suffer through some, some of these things. Um, and so, you know, again, taking the advice of the people uh, when I was just first starting out down the academic road, uh, I used pretty much the stuff that was like validated for decades. Um, so that's what I mean when I say gold standard. Uh, and I just would give people endless amounts of these. I mean, if you were one of my research subjects, I would just, I would like send you a batch of them of like three or four. And then if you sent those back, I'd send you another batch of three or four. And I would just keep doing that until you were like, please don't ever send me anything ever again. <laughs> and so we, I built up all of this data and some of those were psychopathological measures. You know, they were developmental measures. They were obviously well-being, emotion measures, depression measures, uh, depersonalization, personality measures, uh, just all kinds of stuff. Uh, and so from that, I became pretty convinced pretty early on that it was probably not something psychopathological because the people were showing up as, you know, really healthy uh, on all of those different measures. And a lot of those measures are pretty good at fooling you so that you don't really know how you're supposed to 
you know, answer them, uh, especially the psychopathological ones and stuff. Sure. And so by, 20, by 2009, 2010, um, I basically felt like there were enough other people involved in the research around the world. I'd spoken on it at all the major conferences and stuff by that point. And I felt like I could probably get hit by a bus and the whole thing would just keep on going. It wasn't like just resting on me and my efforts anymore. And so I also kind of thought that that was a good time to try to actually transition to this. Um, and so I started to relax sort of the barriers the psychological barriers that I put up with it. Right away, when I was first sitting down with people, you know, sometimes I would sit down with uh, a research subject and they, there, would, there would be some sort of strange effect on my own consciousness. Mm. Uh, and I really learned to block those because you can't ask questions if your mind has gone blank <laughs> in minutes or, you know, whatever, right? So, um, so I'd gotten, I'd kind of gotten masterful at blocking really everybody's influence by after a while you, you couldn't influence me hmm. uh, and so i built up these walls by you know to by the 2009 2010 time frame and i thought to myself i'm gonna have to start figuring out ways now to dissolve those walls um if i want those barriers that i put up if i want to transition to this and so that's the first thing um that i had to do i think a lot of people have those barriers sort of in an unconscious way fortunately i'd consciously built them up so i know how to you know i had at least some sort of clue as to how to consciously instruct them yeah. uh, and then it was really a question of how to get there and by 2010 um, one of the things that had become pretty obvious in the data is that a lot of these people had tried the same stuff now, some of them were like in a tradition where there was only one method or a couple of methods or something, and those people had just sort of stuck with those methods their whole life. Uh, but that was the minority of people. I would say even people that were in long-standing, just a single method, lots of times they tried a lot of different methods. Uh, and people had pretty much tried all the same methods. And yet when they were asked, hey, you know, which one, what is it that really, you know, you th what is it that you think really crossed you over? they didn't all say the same thing, even though they'd used a lot of the same stuff. And so it seemed anecdotally to me at that point, like there was a matching process that was sort of important at an individual psychological level. And so I just tried to sort of keep that in mind for myself and began a process essentially of experimenting with the, with the techniques that had kind of risen to the top of the you know, of the research. And so eventually, you know, I wound my way through a few that had a good impact. And that whole thing, that whole stream of, of observation and whatnot became the experiments that we do with people all around the world. To, they basically use the same method that I hacked together for myself, mm -hmm. a much more refined version of it. You know? yeah. <laughs> They're not the first guinea pig trying to figure it out. <laughs> Just to respond to some of that, firstly, yeah. your, your comment about having the research shot down because it doesn't fit into the materialistic um, paradigm. You know, I mean, someone, I forget who, someone said that science progresses by a series of funerals. And there are certain people who are never going to accept that this isn't psychopathological because it doesn't fit into their paradigm. And the notion that, you know, consciousness might be more fundamental than matter and so on and so forth is just totally alien to them. So you don't always have to please everybody, you know. And there's been research going on since at least 1970, and perhaps earlier, 
which has been getting published in peer-reviewed journals and so on. And, you know, I'm sure that there are many scientists who wouldn't even read those journals, but nonetheless, uh, in, in a certain niche, you know, a certain segment of the scientific world, um, this stuff is taken very seriously, and it's grown a lot since then. I'm sure you're aware of all that. So I just, just wanted to comment. Um, and also, of course, that in saying that, I'm implying that you by no means are the only person doing this kind of research. There have been all sorts of people uh, here in Fairfield and in all kinds of other institutions studying all sorts of different types of meditators and awakened people and so on. And we've come a long yeah, time. I, yeah, go ahead. And I would say exactly. Um, and I encountered all of that in the in the background, initial background literature research and stuff and traveled around and talked to most of those people, mm -hmm. you know, everybody that would talk to me mm -hmm. um, to really sort of get their opinion on, you know, what they would do differently if it was 20, 30 years ago in their career. Um, and they were really the they were really the reason that I then went next and talked to so many of the leading lights in the mainstream because uh, most of those people were like you know kind of stay away from stay away from us you know sort of don't get painted um, into the corner like we've been painted into the corner in many cases um, and they gave me all of the political background like you know everybody who'd been for them everybody who'd been against them they just gave me like this whole big landscape which was what really allowed me to know who was safe to approach um, among the people who were more well known in the mainstream academy so i 100 percent stood on those people's shoulders not just their research in terms of the clues that they had laid and the directions and all of the important work that they'd done, but also, frankly, a lot of their personal advice, uh, a lot of very candid conversations over dinners um, about, you know, what directions to go in and what directions to avoid and who to talk to and who not to talk to and right. what conferences to speak at and what conferences not to try to speak at and, uh, and what phase to do different things at and, and all of that. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's just been... Just as the research, I think, in many ways uh, stands on the shoulders of endless people who have hacked their way to these states of consciousness um, or structures of consciousness or whatever term you want to use. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's that that the research stands on, but the research also stands on a lot of amazing help from the people like you're talking about that, that came before. So and they're still out there. Sure. Um, and would like to have a wider impact and would like to see their work you know, have a wider impact, but are a little bit limited. So I was really, I took from that uh, almost a mission, almost a, a, you know, a charge from them to to try to take the opportunity to mainstream it uh, as much as could be done from an academic standpoint. And I've really tried to do that yeah. uh, ever since then. That was one of the decisions for, I could have gotten the psychology and neuroscience training, you know, at other places, but that was one of the reasons that I chose to go to Harvard, for instance, which mm -hmm. was, you know, ridiculously hard and maybe more than I had to put myself through. Um, <laughs> right. And so it's just, I, it's, so yeah, a lot of that was those, the, I just, I, you know, can't say enough good about all of those folks. Yeah. So let's take a step back for a second. Um, there's a lot of people who probably watch this show and, um, and others who don't, who are spiritual practitioners, and they might have the attitude that, I don't care what scientists think, they're a bunch of idiots anyway, look what they've done to the world, I, I just want to have this, this spiritual 
experience and realization and awakening. And if science thinks it's crazy, then I think they're crazy and I don't even need to know what they think. But my attitude is that, you know, science has done a lot over the last several hundred years to eliminate a lot of idiocy in the name of gaining knowledge. <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously, I mean, during the Inquisition, 800,000 women or so were burned at the stake for being witches. And some people were burned at the stake for daring to suggest that, um, you know, the earth was not the center of the universe and that others, that stars in the sky might be other suns and that they might have planets around them and that, that might even right. have people on them of some sort, some life. And so, you know, science, is, science has kind of chipped away uh, in small and large chunks at, at the, the territory that re religion once held to be its own. And I think that has been tremendously beneficial for us. Um, and personally, so I think I, I've given whole talks and I think a lot about the fact that science and spirituality are actually buddies. You know, they can actually help each other. They each have something to offer that the other, all by itself, doesn't have. And... Um, so what I, I see what you're doing is a really valuable thing, and I'm also really interested in the idea of maps, that, that the whole territory of possibility of what can be experienced, and, and we're really not just talking about subjective experiences that one can wallow in that have no bearing on reality. The, the whole purpose of spirituality, as I understand it, is to actually come to know what's real. Not only in an absolute sense, where you come to know consciousness, you know, fundamental, your essential nature, but all sorts of relative considerations that a more refined and cultured nervous system based in unbounded consciousness can begin to explore. And in that sense, the human nervous system can be regarded as a profoundly sophisticated scientific instrument and can be used in a scientific way posing working hypotheses and then investigating them in order to arrive at more and more clear and detailed knowledge. I'll, I'll be done with this riff in just a second, <laughs> and then you can respond. And I think that you know maybe a few hundred years from now, we won't see this sort of schism between science and spirituality. Both of them, both of those methodologies will have converged into, you know, we're just gaining understanding about, about reality, about the universe, and these tools over here, these more objective tools are helpful for enabling us to probe these areas, and these more subjective methodology, methodologies are useful for helping us to understand those areas, and we're just putting together a, a clear picture of the whole territory. So, I kind of see you as a, a major contributor to that effort, that you're attempting to uh, to objectively um, chart out the um, various stages or levels uh, of subjective development. Many other traditions have offered roadmaps. You know, have suggested that there's all these certain stages of consciousness or levels of consciousness. And if you study it deeply, you, seem, you find that there seem to be some similarity between these these different traditions. Um, but I, th I think it could, with the, in, in time, and maybe not even in our lifetimes, it could all be kind of nailed down, um, and we could end up end up with a sort of a, a general agreement as to, um, you know, what the, the the whole range of of reality is, from gross to subtle to transcendent, and how best how we can best um, 
explore it. And it wouldn't necessarily be a monolithic thing where we're just going to use this method to explore it. As you note, different methods might be better for different people. So I could probably say more, but why don't you just riff off of that a bit? Yeah, I completely agree with you. You touched on that also in a podcast I watched from you recently uh, from Berkeley. Oh, right, yeah. Um, which was great. I thought it was really great. Anytime I can see you know, a podcast with you sharing just a little bit of your own experience and what you've learned, I always watch them. Oh, thanks. Uh, so I was really glad that I, I saw – I was reading in the thing where you basically said people had to kind of talk you into putting that up. Um, yeah, super, yeah, I'm one of those people that's super grateful that you put stuff like that up. You know, just FYI. Well, I get I get flack from people saying I talk too much. I, almost every day, I get some YouTube comment say, "Would the interviewer would he just shut up and let the person talk?" And how dare he question Rupert Spira, uh, Spira about you know what he knows? Just let let Rupert teach him and so on. So I try not to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I get that. I mean, I went through kind of a similar phase. It's funny, I reached a point where I was talking to people, um, I guess probably maybe two or three years in, and I'd had such in-depth conversations across so many different traditions and from uh, this sort of scientific perspective. Uh, in fact, that's a good way for me to answer and talk a little bit about what you just said. So one of the things that made our research different is that I assumed that we were going to help people get there with technology. Right? If you think mm -hmm. about my background, I'm basically a technologist, uh, I mean, business, technology, media, that kind of stuff, right? But it all has a really technological bent. And so I just assumed there would be like brain zapping involved yeah. or some Sh sort of Shinzen Young. I, I interviewed Shinzen about a month ago, and he's researching ways to kind of like shut down parts of the brain, you know, and using magnets or something to trigger yeah. these experiences. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I've surrounded myself with some of those devices, and just in case you want to talk about them later and see them or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I really thought, you know, we're going to nail this with technology. Okay, well, how do, working back from we're going to nail it with technology, what's the path to nailing it with technology, right? And so a little bit back from there is you need to have um, probably, you know, EEG work done because that's a cheap technology that can reach everybody. A little bit back from there before you do the EEG work, you're probably going to need to do fMRI work and stuff like that because that's, um, it's just a little bit better for other reasons to, to start there and get kind of a nice picture of what's going on in the brain. And then, you know, back from there, you've got, you can't just, I think people watch like, I don't know, maybe they saw like um, Judd Brewer or something with John Kabat-Zinn on 60 Minutes. Uh, or, you know, they watch TV and they see like people that do fMRI work and they're always like scrolling through the brain and it looks like you just, you know, you're just magically scanning the whole brain. But you have to really design these experiments super, super carefully. You have to have a pretty good idea of what you're looking for in order to design those experiments. And of course, we had no idea really what we were looking for uh, when we started down the road of this population. And so usually with those types of studies, first you do a lot of groundwork. It's not uncommon for an fMRI study to have three or five years of prep work going into it before they know, you know how to look at what they want to look at and all of that. Uh, it's one of the benefits of, it's why a lot of the groundbreaking stuff comes out of PhDs because people have the three to five year ramp to do all that work without tons of pressure to produce on this grant or that grant and publish on it right away and all of that. Uh, so one of the so that was actually a unique thing for us because I went in asking these people um, after the survey stuff after the gold standard measure stuff the next thing we did was just start sitting down with them and I would sit down with somebody for until basically they kicked me out of their living room 
or you know, I, I'm really not kidding about that. People, yeah, I know you said twelve hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind like, of a joke among our research yeah. subjects. Like when they're all together at Sand, and I'm in the conversation, and they're like, "Hey, you know, did you have to kick him out of your living room too?" <laughs> uh, and it's true they did because like I was in it to suck every last little bit of information out of their head, right? But I was asking all of the questions in a very specific way, and it was a very unusual way for them because it was all along the lines of cognitive science. It was basically asking about cognition, which is like thoughts and thinking, you know, the nature and qualities and stuff of their thoughts and thinking, affect, which is roughly translated as emotion, uh, perception, memory, and then after a little bit of time, once I started to get a little bit of a clue, sense of self. Uh, and so my questions were all around that, right? And what I would do is I would allow someone to um, talk, I would, I would, you know, be sitting in their living room or we'd be sitting at a cafe or, you know, wherever they wanted to meet. I would always, I would go to them. Uh, I'd spent a long time just traveling around with a new person every day, basically. Um, and I would just basically sit in front of them and I would start by saying something like, you know, okay, well, what can you tell me, you know, about this, you know? Uh, it's just kind of a loose, casual question. And they would launch into their standard story with their standard language and all of that. Um, and I would make a note of their language so that I could incorporate it as much as possible while talking back to them. But mostly that was just like 30 minutes or an hour of rapport building um, so that they felt like they could open up to me. Because I had that same problem with research subjects that you're talking about. It's really hard to get research subjects in the early years because people were like, you know, science can never study. The research participants felt like science could never study it. And they just weren't interested in wasting their time with some scientist uh, and all of that. And so I had a lot of effort that we had to. The term persistent non-symbolic experience, it, doesn't, it didn't come after the research. It came while we were searching for any phrase that would not get the phone hung up on us. And that was the one that basically got us our first research participants. Let's define that phrase. So persistent means it, it lasts. It doesn't just come okay. and go. Non-symbolic, why do you use that phrase? I, you know, it was, I was looking for anything that people might latch onto. We were testing all kinds of language and there was a sentence in a, in a Susan Cook Greuter paper, Suzanne Cook Greuter paper, uh, who did a, a, an educational doctorate at Harvard under Keegan and the developmental side and basically broke out one of the developmental measures to include some of the stuff that we're talking about here today. Uh, and in a 2000 paper, she basically had a sentence that said, non-symbolically mediated consciousness. And I thought, that's pretty good. Let's put that on the list to try and see if no, see, you know, we're trying to not get people to hang up on us, right? We're trying to get people to say, sure, come by or, you know, send us your surveys back okay. then. So, but so non-symbolic <laughs> simply means that there's, it's not just a mental fabrication or a conceptual representation that the person is directly apprehending some, some deeper reality. Is that what you mean to say by that phrase? Well, now we've defined it, you know, more precisely um, from an academic standpoint. Uh, but frankly, back in those early days, the great thing about that phrase was that if you were in these types of experiences, it just seemed to land okay with you, right? You would paint, you would put whatever your idea of this was on it, and it wasn't, you know, it didn't offend it in any way. Um, yeah, so, so you're not going to say enlightened people or something because that has so much baggage with it and people would either claim it erroneously or uh, you know feel uncomfortable using it because it has such a static superlative 
you know, connotation to it, things like that. Yeah, and even like consciousness and experience, like people, you know, I would use the, I would try to like look at a little bit of people's materials before we contacted them mm -hmm. to try to get them to participate in the research. But it seemed like I was just always offending how they wanted to talk about it. <laughs> uh, it was just crazy. I just, no matter how much I studied even their own language patterns, they would still get back to me and be like, you know, just from the way you're talking, I can tell you're never going to understand this. And you're just, yeah, it's a waste of time to sit down with you. And, yeah. But that non-symbolically mediated thing that Suzanne came up with, uh -huh. I love Suzanne, I love her work, she's awesome, she's one of those people who was, you know, really helpful with advice and stuff um, over the years. I, that was just gold, like everybody, like everybody just didn't blink. They were like, yeah, okay, that sounds like what I, kind of what I experienced, like an academic-y term around what I experienced, sure, come to the, come to the house. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so what you're alluding to here then is what we might also call higher states of consciousness. Um, sure. And you've charted out, you, you told me once that you think there might be as many as 24 gradations that, that could be defined, but that you're deal, dealing primarily with four of them, you know, levels or locations one through four. And, right. e and, and you know, as you define them in your book, um, you know, level four is pretty spiffy. Um, you know, many people... And it may also have some drawbacks that somebody trying to live a practical life might, you know, want, not want in, to, ha to, to be experiencing. But basically you're saying that, um, you know, there are higher levels of consciousness, to use the, a more common phrase, and you're trying to define them and you're also, and, and kind of really chart them out in a, in a way which cuts across all traditions. And you're trying to devise the most effective methodologies for experiencing them quickly, easily, and safely, right? Good summary? I guess, yeah. And I would say a lot of that just, pretty much all of that just emerged. Yeah. Like when we were, you know, when I was initially asking people questions about cognition, affect, perception, memory, sense of self, um, they, they had never gotten those questions before, right? Mm -hmm. Even if they had tens of thousands of students or more, um, even if they were some super famous person who did nothing but answer their students' questions about this all the time. And, you know, I would be around them when their, when their chief, like, disciples were around them or their main, you know, lieutenants or whatever. And those people, you know, asked very sophisticated questions to them. And I would be around them when, oftentimes, when just, like, ordinary people were asking them questions at an event or something like that. And they always had their answers, like, immediately back to the people. You know, they'd just been asked this stuff a million times. Yeah. People just ask the same stuff again and again. And I would sit down with them and I would ask them our questions. And they would just kind of sit silently looking at me for a minute. And I learned over time that, that they basically just had never been asked these types of things before. And that they, it forced them to really sort of search mm -hmm. their own experience before they answered. And that, so over the like years, got things? us a lot of research subjects yeah. because they started referring me to that that turned out to be extremely helpful as a process to them as you probably know you know with pnse when your self-referential thought and all of that you know kind of quiets down pnse is persistent non-symbolic experience non yeah. experience yeah. yeah you become a lot less um sort of self-reflective um and there's a huge benefit i noticed uh, that a lot of major uh figures would would have a couple of different people around them in their inner circle. They would usually have one or two person, one or two people who had had significant attainments and had a lot of potential and stuff like they did. And then they would have people around them that really seemed like they were never going to get out of their mind. Mm. You know, like they were never going to get out of their traditional thing. And it took me a long time to realize that both of those 
both of those people really served that teacher um, in very powerful ways. The people who, who are just constantly stuck in their mind have endless questions from like the level of just normal thinking and stuff and not really having an experience of it, um, really help you if you're in sort of a you know more advanced version or a later sort of deeper version of this or however you want to say it, um, really help you to be, to, to reflect on what's going on in your consciousness because you're not that self-reflexive. And so when someone's asking you a question, you have to answer it. And so, you know, then your brain kind of kicks in or whatever kicks in and, you know, you, you reflect on that question and you answer that question. In the process of doing that, your own knowledge about your own states of consciousness expand. And so they kind of keep these, it seems like they've just all, a lot of them, not every one of them, but it seems like most of them have developed this pattern where they keep people around them that are peppering them with really good advanced questions on sort of the consciousness side from the experience side. And then they also keep these people around them. And I think a lot of people wonder like, why do they allow those you know, highly, they're often highly political, stuck in their mind. They, they, sometimes they can create a lot of organizational problems, stuff like that. But they provide this value of, of this additional level of self-reflexivity from that direction. For these people, and so I started basically being that same person. You know, I had talked across all of these different traditions to all of these different people about these, about this from a perspective that wasn't, you know, awareness or God or any of the terms that emptiness or you know any of the terms that are normally asked or used. Uh, and people started to just, you know, heavily refer me to each other because they're like, "You got to sit down with this guy. Like he's, <laughs> you know, like yeah. he'll." He's, He'll get your, you'll realize a lot more about yourself by the time he's done, you know, by the time you kick him out of your living room 12 hours later. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the best way to learn is to teach, you know, and um, if you have, it's like, and, and to be a good teacher, you really have to be able to speak to the level of consciousness of the listener, so to speak, um, which doesn't, you know, it's like the saying in India, when, when the mangoes are ripe, the, the branches bend down so that people can pick them easily. So, you know, if you're just sort of speaking at this level and people are listening at this level, uh, never the twain shall meet, and especially if you don't have any techniques or methods for people to sort of get to the level of experience that you're, you're describing. So a, a good teacher, as I've observed it, can swing across a wide spectrum of uh, levels of experience and just address... And could just on a dime, you know, shift from one level to the other in order to address any questioner um, at their level of relevancy, at their level of experience. And in doing so, it, it cultures them, as you were just saying. It, it sort of enlivens all these different facets in their own experience, in their own personality, and makes them a much more comprehensive uh, person, not only in terms of it being able to teach, but in terms of their own actual experience. It integrates their experience into all strata of, of you know, creation, all, all strata of experience. Exactly. And yeah. I, one of the things that it accidentally did for us is it, is it led to that sort of taxonomy of different categories of experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I was trying to sort people for fMRI and EEG work and stuff, right? And so I was asking them these cognitive science questions that nobody had really ever asked them before. And I think most of the researchers, if not maybe all of the researchers that came before me, uh, they would sit down with these people and they would do interviews with them and they would sort of let let these folks get away with talking about this the way they wanted to talk about it. 
And I would only do that for the first half hour or so, maybe the first hour. <laughs> Just to and warm then them I up. would like be peppering them with these cognitive science-based questions. And, and it had the, the somewhat unintended, not somewhat, but the unintended consequence of sort of leveling the playing field yeah. across these different experiences. Um, and it's because it wasn't now I didn't have to like have a precise definition of spaciousness, right? Or have a precise definition of the certain aspects of the divine or have a I was just, you know, basically our model um, doesn't deal with any of that. You know, our model deals with changes in cognition, affect, perception and memory. Hmm. And it seems to have gotten to sort of a core across these different traditions uh, and one that usually isn't written up or understood. Uh, I've stopped a lot of that descriptive research at the point where I just was sitting down with people and they, there wasn't new information coming out and I wasn't running up against other traditions maps. I wasn't like sitting down with some Theravada Buddhist teacher and having the Theravada Buddhist teacher, for instance, say, wow, you know what you're talking about with your levels and locations, that makes no sense to me at all. Like I can't, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, we have this level and it's like what you're talking about there. Mm -hmm. But they talk about it, all of the traditions talk about it from their own spiritual sort of language. And I'm talking about this sort of stuff that they've never even thought to care about with the cognition and emotional stuff and the perception stuff and memory changes and huh. things like that. So that was pretty, that was really interesting. I mean, it was just really interesting. In a way though, it sounds like you're talking about symptomatic stuff that can be observed from the outside or measured from the outside, you know, cognition yeah. and memory and the several things you mentioned. And you, you kind of like brushed off, you know, the divine or, you know, kind of things that are, they're not, outwardly observable, but that could be very profound and meaningful for the person experiencing them. Um, and if you're, right. and if we're really going to talk about, you know, maybe many, many levels, even beyond the four that you primarily focus on, which we haven't yet defined, but if we're really going to talk about that, then there could be all kinds of things that your the modern scientific methodologies would be incapable of measuring, but that would be the real meat of, of the person's life of, of their experience, you know, the really meaningful stuff. I think that's very well put. Um, and, you know, our, as you said earlier, you basically correctly divined our current focus. Initially it was, are these people, you know, who's the happiest people? And then, okay, are those people crazy? Uh, and then it was, okay, how, do, how can you get there? What's going on with their brains and, and whatnot? And now really, um, you know, I believe that this is a very positive thing. I don't, I don't think that everybody should be forced to experience this or something. But I do think that you know people who want to experience it shouldn't have have it be a total crapshoot that maybe they'll spend their whole lives doing something and never get there or whatever, right? And so now it's a question of how do you make this um, for for us? It's a question of how do you make it safely and reliably and sort of as quickly as you can available, right? Yeah. Uh, so without all the hoopla, that, that's out, another point I just want to throw in here, and that is that I think if if people had a better understanding of what it is we're actually talking about, what it is that you actually might experience in the name of enlightenment, um, and better understanding of what techniques are effective, it could circumvent all kinds of crazy cult-like weirdo stuff that people spend their entire lives and fortunes on, you know? And we don't have to name names, they make the news fairly regularly. So um, I think right. it's important in that respect. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think uh, you're right in terms of what is most meaningful to people in their experience. That's, of course, what they ask about, what they write their books about, what they come on Backgap and talk about. 
Uh, and we cut out all that. But one of the benefits of cutting out all of that is that you get to stuff that's measurable from a scientific perspective. And I don't know that I would call something a symptom and something else not a symptom. It's tough to know what is and isn't a symptom. Um, but it seems um, like... By symptom, learned, I meant kind of objectively measurable with some sort of instrument. Yeah. You know. And so what we've learned is that those, those things that we can measure mm -hmm. are helpful as both classification systems to help people understand where they're at and you know how to sort of deal with life in a practical sense from where they're at which is very useful as you know from endless interviews and hearing lots of people's adjustment stories and all of that um, that's really important knowledge for people it's not you know okay once you're there you you know you're kind of just at the beginning of an endless process and so how that process unfolds in the first couple of years versus the first seven or so years there's just these different cycles and it's kind of helpful to have an understanding of that landscape and that i think is that that's where a lot of the stuff that we work on um, provides a lot of insight it doesn't say it doesn't say much about you know it doesn't have a dog in the fight so to speak about the divine or about whatever but it's practical uh, we think it's very, very practical. And so it's practical in terms of helping people get there, at least it seems like at this point from our experiments. And we know also, we've run other experiments where it's practical in helping people adjust to it once they do get there and to sort of optimize their modern life and make the right decisions. Some, one of the things that I see a lot in spiritual teachers is, and not just spiritual teachers, but non-dual psychotherapists and you know anybody who's sort of into this, uh, even spiritual atheists, maybe like Sam Harris or whoever, is this sort of notion of push the pedal to the metal, right? And I find that most people have an understanding of only some of the classifications that shook out in our research, right? Um, and so, you know, maybe they'll have like two or three classifications that they consider valid. Maybe they only have one of our classifications that they consider quote unquote valid enlightenment or quote unquote valid non-duality uh, or whatever else, right? But, they're, but they almost always have this sense where they're trying to be like, push the pedal to the metal, you know, go as far as you can. Like, that's what this is all about. And we have a completely different view of that. You know, you've, I'm sure, talked to so many people that you maybe have the same view. Like, I don't have this push the pedal to the metal thing. Like, if you've got a house and a mortgage and a complicated job and young children and whatever else, like, you know, maybe there's more appropriate forms of this for you and your life at this particular moment than other ones. And maybe pushing the pedal to the metal for you is not really optimal for your own life and for the people who are depending upon you, uh, you know, to raise them uh, in the best way possible if they're your yeah. children. Or, I think some of the more mature spiritual traditions recognize that and advocated performing your dharma, you know, and just doing what is possible and practical for you without leaving your dependents in the lurch or something, you know. I mean, rearrange your eggs, sure, but keep sitting on them at the same time. <laughs> yeah, especially it's. I think I wish more traditions were. I don't yeah. see across that a lot of traditions. I mean, the Hindu traditions, especially. Well, they're uh, pretty good at it. The phases of life that you're, yeah, you know, breaking, all that. Yeah, you do you do your duty, and you have a kind of a long a long view of it too. You don't. It's not like exactly. you know enlightenment or bust in the next ten years. It's like you're going to be at this game for a while, and so take it a step at a time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
But it seems like as as a lot of that stuff gets translated into the West, that's lost, right? And uh, people who are going to like workshops here aren't necessarily, you know, attracted to a message of, well, you know, after you retire, <laughs> yeah. after certain things. I mean, they like want it now, right? I well, mean, even then, I think that progress. that can sell it short. I mean, there's no need to wait until after you retire. You and I have been engaged right. in this sort of thing while living very active lives. And uh, if you wait until after you retire to even start considering spirituality, which some in India have, you know, they've taken that philosophy, then you basically you know you're missing out on something okay. I, I didn't want to say wasting your life but it, which sounds a little harsh but it, you know it's it can be a lifelong endeavor in the midst oh, yeah. of doing the other things that life involves totally yeah totally yeah we're going to narrow as we go along here we're going to narrow in on a couple of things um one is how you actually define these levels that you're sure. defining and also what the practical steps are for people to experience them. I'll tell you, one, ob one objection that I've already heard from people is that um, the finder's course, which is the, the, the course that you devise to help people move into these higher levels, is, uh, gives the impression that something akin to enlightenment or profound realization can happen pretty quickly and easily. And, you know, people are saying, really? I mean, you can just spend a, a few months and, and begin to experience what Buddhist monks or, you know, really dedicated practitioners might have spent decades, you know, trying to attain. Aren't you kind of dumbing it down or, you know, so that kind of objection. So you don't need to answer that bit right now, but let, let's kind of, as okay. we move along the next few minutes, let's talk about the stages of development as you define them, methods for experiencing them, and maybe also answering that, that doubt I just voiced. Yeah, sure. I, I'll start with that. Okay. Um, absolutely. There's a lot of, there's, you know, basically different populations that consume our research. Mm -hmm. um, and one of those populations is the, is people that come from very specific religious and spiritual traditions uh, who have absorbed certain beliefs around these types of what to me are basically psychological states in some sense, right? I mean, I come at it from the psychology, neuroscience sort of perspective. Uh, we can debate that endlessly. And I mean, you know, you can't get beyond, you can't get behind consciousness, right? I mean, it's just kind of all just showing up. And I, I acknowledge all of that certainly as well. But the tools that I use uh, to sort of research and understand this are pretty much psychological and, you know, neurological uh, type tools. And so that's the framework that I usually talk from. And I would say, you know, that we live in an amazing time. One of the interesting pieces of uh, data in our data set is that starting somewhere around 1996, there seem to be a lot more people who are reporting transitions to this and experiencing this mm -hmm. than before that, right? And we just get to that by, you know, how long did somebody, you know, if, if you were, if you woke up or transition to PNSE or whatever phrase we want to use, right? In a persistent way, not a temporary experience. I don't. I'm not an expert on temporary experience, and that's just not anything I've studied really. Um, Ultra spirituality, so, to use J.P. Sears' term, you know. 
Yeah, remember JP? <laughs> you know JP with the red hair and the bandana and the oh, flowers. Yeah. <laughs> I saw. I saw that like he was. I think you just did. Him I just did him here. the other day. Yeah. So so as we transition to ultra spirituality, yeah. Go on. <laughs> <Right>. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so the the. The, the interesting thing, I think, from our perspective is that you have sort of these long views, but you also have this interesting data point where starting around 1996, it seems like a lot more people are having luck with this. Let me throw in a question there, which I'm, you're probably going to answer anyway, and that is that, you know, that kind of coincides with the early emergence of the Internet. And obviously, it really picked up steam after that. So one question I'm often asked is, well, were these people out there anyway? We just didn't know about them because they had no way of finding each other? Or is it actually sort of, you know, is there an epidemic that started to catch on around that time? That's, yeah, that's a great question. And you, I, I took, I didn't realize the internet thing right away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that 1996 data point was just something that I would occasionally throw out there in a conversation or something. and. And even though I lived through the whole internet thing, I remember when AOL plugged into the internet in 1993, like I totally should have picked up on the internet thing. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, it was a conversation with somebody else that was like, well, that's about when you know the mainstream started to hit the internet and you started to get this information explosion on the internet. And I was like, duh, <laughs> good point. Um, and so I think that's exactly right in terms of the internet, but and it's probably also correct that it allowed a lot more connectivity, a lot more people to share their experiences and stuff like that. But the, and, and so that's also in the data, and and I, I, I agree with that. I agree with what you just said. But there's another more interesting data point in that data for me. And it's that after people who report transitions to PNSE after 1996 are much more likely to get there faster, much, much, much faster than people who reported transitions in like 1976 or 1983 or whatever else, right? I mean, those people seemed like they were at it for decades. Yeah, you know, I'll just throw in here that my, my sister is a full-time TM teacher and I have other friends who are, and they often say that these days when they instruct people, the, the people start having experiences from day one that it took them decades to have and in some cases still haven't had and you're, <laughs> they're feeling envious and trying to sort of like you know not let on that they're not they haven't experienced what their, their students are already experiencing so it does yeah. seem and someone used the the, the metaphor of a, a membrane as if uh, the you, to, to get to the other side, so to speak, you have to go through a membrane. And the membrane used to be really thick and tough back in the days of the Buddha or whatever. You had to really be a superman to break through it. But these days, it's become very thin, and, and it's much more easily broken, and a lot of people are breaking through. I think that's, you know, it's tough for me to know if it's the Rupert Sheldrick sort of 100th hundred, hundred monkey morphogenetic fields sort of thing, mm -hmm. uh, or part that and, and part something else, because there's a flip side to this, and that's that uh, it also has made available for the first time ever a lot more advice and a lot more methods. You know, if you were stuck in the Middle Ages in medieval Christianity, you pretty much just had a couple of methods um, that you can, and we know from our research uh, if you think back to earlier in the interview where I say a lot of people have tried the same methods and, you know, they're not all reporting the same thing that worked for them. It seems like there is this matching up process. Well, if you're stuck in, you know, Middle Ages Christianity with just a couple of methods and you're not in the 8% of the population or something that those methods are going to work for, uh, you're kind of screwed, right? And so I think another thing that happened after 1996 for us 
uh, or whenever, right? Just speaking from a data standpoint, after about 1996, um, is that you start to have many, many more methods accessible. I mean, prior to, we don't we forget this, but I lived most of my life limited by the information capacity of my local library. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, that was it. That was the sum total of the knowledge in your world, effectively, was what your library could get, right? If you lived, if you had a, access to a great library, if you had Harvard's library and they could get you anything, you were awesomely information rich. If you grew up in Peoria, Illinois, where I spent some time and was born and stuff, right, and you have a dinky little library by comparison, you were very information poor. And now there's this, it's a completely different story. And so I think it's also people can, can get a much greater diversity of device of advice. They can get exposed to a lot more methods and they can have a much better chance of hacking their way around and finding the methods that work for them. So I don't know like what part of it is, you know, sort of Sheldrick morphogenetic field type idea and what part of it is just this incredible access to information that probably did exist and start to really exist by yeah. 1996. And it may be both things going on, you know, but they're just sort of Couple, several different factors that are simultaneously moving forward. We had the research associate um, go to Burma. I didn't um, go to Burma myself. I went to a lot of places myself, but I didn't go to Burma myself. We had a research associate um, go to Burma, and one of the things that she learned during her research in Burma was she met um, these very, very sort of old people, uh, you know, old monks and nuns and stuff like that. And she was very surprised the first time she had a conversation with one of the old nuns. Uh, and the old nun was basically like, you know, 50 years ago, people used to come to the monastery. And if they didn't, this is a Theravada monastery, and if they didn't, you know, have their stream entry event or first path or whatever else in a week, um, we started to really pay attention to them because we thought, wow, these, this is someone who needs more help. You know, if they hadn't done it by the end of a couple of weeks, we were starting to get a little suspect that they were like hiding out from the law. Or, <laughs> <laughs> and so there, there, there apparently have been times in these traditions, uh, and, and the same, you know, none, uh, and she talked to other people, obviously, it wasn't just this one nun's data point or whatever, but she was just surprised at this conversation from this, you know, this first, this very first conversation that she had about this. Um, and the same nun says, you know, now people come and it's like they'll probably leave without having had any uh, experience or maybe they'll come and they'll stay for months and maybe they'll have a little experience or she's like, you know, there's been the, there's been some sort of change and she thought it, you know, related to people being much more distracted, having their consciousness and their attention and stuff much more fragmented, just like TV came in. Mm. Um, you know, there's just been a change in, in how people process information and stuff that she attributed to. And so they're... they're, they're well, that seems to contradict what we were saying a minute ago, which is that people seem to be having breakthroughs more, more readily. Yeah. Well, yeah. So why is that? Right, because it suggests that even in some of these traditions that maybe people thought in some areas of the world, there was like, you know, maybe Theravada Buddhism in, the, in you know, X country, there was this tradition of, oh, it's going to take you forever. Um, then, you know, in, in these monasteries in Burma, people were like, and others have written about this. Dan Ingram, I know, put this in uh, his book, um, uh, which I can't think of the name of right now. But it's, you know, available from his website or whatever. And so I think, I think that there's this notion that 
in the West, somehow, there is the, you know, we've absorbed the traditions for whatever reason, the beliefs, the aspects of the beliefs from these traditions that say this stuff should take a really long time. But that's not necessarily the case when you're actually embedding yourself in research situations in some of these traditions. In fact, they've, they think it should move much faster, but mm. I have other examples like this. You know, I'm just picking this one example. And then you have people like Dan Ingram, he's a pretty good example, and Kenneth Folk, who started Dharma Overground and Underground, and I can't, there's like sort of a, I can't keep all of that straight in terms of who did which one of those and when they split apart and all of that. But, you know, they've worked really hard to try to provide resources, advice to people, mostly from a Theravada standpoint, but not exclusively. And their view is certainly, you know, you can wake up quick. Uh, you shouldn't be dilly-dallying around with this, you know, let us come here to our forums and let us help you get there quick. Liberation Unleashed, I think, is another good example. Yeah. So you start, you're starting to see this sort of sneak back in, and I only come to it through data, right? Uh, and it's not stories from monks like and nuns and stuff like the one I told a minute ago in Burma. It's that, you know, I would really puzzle over why is it that when you're doing interviews in Fairfield, for instance, right? Why is it that you can sit down with one person and literally like while the orange was being placed on the altar or whatever during the TM uh, initiation ceremony, you know, they just, they transitioned right there. And then you talk to somebody else and you know, 50 years later of just diligent daily practice with the Siddha method and you know whatever else they transit something led to their transition and then yeah. sort of everything in between I think it's really important to define what you mean by transition though I mean when I learned to meditate you know I dropped like a rock a very deep profound experience from day one but I would consider myself to be still transitioning I mean there's no in, in my experience so far there's no end to the unfoldment and refinement and I'm a little suspicious of uh, a lot of people who say that, oh, I awakened, or you know, you know I'm, I'm doing Liberation Unleashed, and they, they told me I'm liberated now. Um, I just kind of feel like there's a... You get the certificate. Yeah, there's a sort of, a, I don't know, a tendency to, on the one hand, mistake intellectual understanding for realization, and um, also to um, just be a little unclear about... I mean, if you could... I, had a, I interviewed a guy one time, he said, there's not an inch of difference or daylight between me and Ramana Maharshi. In other words, I've realized the essential unity of, of life, he realized it, we're, we're have, we're having, I'm having the same experience he had. But I suspect that if he were to magically step into Ramana Maharshi's sandals and see the world through his eyes, he would be flabbergasted by the contrast between what he was experiencing and what Ramana was experiencing. And I'm not saying that to make it sound like in true enlightenment is something forever beyond our reach and we're just going to spend you know, the rest of our lives chasing the dangling carrot and all. I think there's a balance between um, you know, appreciating how utterly profound it can actually be and sure. and not selling ourselves short in terms of what we are actually experiencing, giving ourselves credit for the degree to which we have realized it. I think another place where you see that is with like uh, John Wheeler, for instance. Uh -huh. um, what about you know him? John Wheeler um, in the sort of neo Advaita tradition, um, and he he sort of you know had his transition with Sailor Bob down in uh, Australia. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but he had a sense that like there must be more to this thing. Even though it was a profound transition, even though he was able to recognize that you know he was where you know people had said he should be from all of his previous studies and all of that, he's like there must be more to this. And it was interesting because he told me that he basically spent his vacations for years trying to track down the original um, devotees that were still alive in India of Nizargadatta, because he just he there were things in you know. I mean, people with the books from Nizargadatta and stuff are not Nizargadatta's, right? They're like disciples writing down Nizargadatta's stuff or whatever, right? So it's all a little bit translated through these different people's consciousness. And he could just see that there were these occasional phrases that didn't make sense and that, that seemed to point to something different than what was being presented as sort of Nizargadatta's ideas or whatever. And eventually, after like 10 years or something crazy, he finally found like one of these core Indian disciples. Um, and he's sitting in the guy's living room in India on one of his vacations. He's a tech writer in Silicon Valley um, for a day job, and uh, the, and he's and he, and he basically is like, you know, what is what did Nizargadatta really mean? And the guy was like, well, what do you think Nizargadatta really meant, right? And so he like gave him. He, he basically had he felt like he'd had this transition, I think, by that time, and that he pieced together enough of Nizargadatta's little fragments that were scattered throughout these texts that were kind of disembodied in the texts in essence uh, and he's like this is what i think is being pointed to but it's like completely different than what everybody i know in america and in the west thinks he meant and the guy's like yeah that's exactly that's you know that was completely his teachings and once he realized that he was talking to somebody who understood he opened the door to him talking to other people who were in that sort of the other living people who were indian and disciples of him and stuff and so yeah i think there's there's, there's always that um it's fascinating right how even though even in situations where there's like consensus around somebody's body of work um you can still have this you can still have that consensus be missing a much a whole deeper level uh, associated with that, and I think that's always that's always a risk. Yeah, know, for sure. and at the risk of sounding uh, sacrilegious, I would venture to guess that Nisargadatta himself had a next horizon and a next horizon, and so on. That yeah. there, there's there's really no end to it. Um, no, there doesn't seem to be right. This just seems to be. To, I I put it in the psychology neuroscience language right um just my thing um and to me it's just you know your brain is a dynamical system and so it's always changing you know it, whatever happens in the context and we can talk about some of that if you want but i think your readers your listeners are probably not that interested in like the neuroscience side of it given all the other stuff we can talk about but when you think about the changes you know you go through sort of this changes and rewiring and stuff in your brain they're going to keep you're kind of pointing your brain in a different direction and it's going to keep unfolding and it's going to keep changing and it's going to keep deepening yeah. and it's going to keep you know it's it's you're nudging a dynamical system in a new path and it's not going to like not become dynamical all of a sudden it's going to stay dynamical and head on in that direction just like it was heading in the direction of your normal ego or whatever and you know trying to make sure you had the best car in the neighborhood or whatever <laughs> it was before that right now i'm really glad you said that because um you know, pr probably most people are familiar with the term neuroplasticity, that the brain changes and uh, undergoes changes. And probably most people are familiar with the notion or could, could understand it easily that 
you know, major states of consciousness are correlated with significant differences in the way the brain and nervous system function. So, you know, when we're awake, asleep, or dreaming, those three states are distinguishable from one another, not only in terms of our subjective experience, but in terms of brain waves and other things that scientists can measure. And it would seem, you would probably agree, that these higher states of consciousness that saints and sages and mystics and whatnot have been experiencing um, are so significantly different subjectively that they must be significantly different physiologically. And exactly. so that begs the question of how quick can the brain change? I mean, can you actually shift to the subjective and physiological state that some great sage uh, experienced 2,000 years ago in a matter of months without totally frying your circuitry? I mean, is, the, is human physiology even capable of shifting that quickly? Or do you more just get sort of tastes and flavors of it and uh, it might take decades to really mature into the identical experience. And decades because, again, the brain isn't going to change on a dime. It's going to take a while. Yeah, if you think about, there's this really popular class uh, at Harvard called Positive Psychology, which I think was the only class to ever have more students in it than economics. Because so many people, like even poetry majors at Harvard, have like want to become venture capitalists and get rich or whatever. Right? So everybody takes economics. So they can just write poetry all the time and not have to worry about it. Yeah. Right. Uh, but pretty much everybody else takes economics. Uh, and so there was this positive psychology class that just kind of came out of the blue, uh, and just was just this hugely popular class, and it just stunned everybody. I don't think everybody realized how miserable everybody else there was, you know? <laughs> except for the health sciences, who would occasionally write something in the Crimson, which is like the newspaper online thing, uh, saying, you know, we have like the highest antidepressant use <laughs> imaginable, you know, here. Mm. Uh, and so it turns out like there was this amazing class, and I, I happened to catch, I think maybe the last one of it. The main professor who taught it had left, and uh, his graduate student who had just got his PhD, uh, Tal Ben-Shahar, who's since gone on to become like a major figure in the, in the happiness uh, space, um, was teaching the course. And I remember this was addressed, I thought, really eloquently by Tal in that class. And what he basically said is, he likened it to post-traumatic stress disorder. And I can't remember the, the, the opposite phrase that he had for that. But at one point in his academic research, he'd become sort of interested in this, in this notion that in, when you're in a really super uh, crazy stressful situation, like, you know, some people have PTSD. And as you know, PTSD is a huge, persistent, very deeply wired, Thing in the brain. I mean, it destroys lives. You know, the VA and the government, and they spend enormous amounts of research money trying to figure out anything that they can. They don't have that much that is effective that can help people, you know, shake off their PTSD. In fact, it's one of the few places if you want to do meditation research that you can get a lot of money to do your meditation research. If you study PTSD or you study addiction, you can study meditation. In, main, in the mainstream academy, right? If you get too far beyond that, it's hard to find money for it. Uh, and Tao had learned that people that were going through these types of situations also sometimes went through the exact opposite experience, where instead of it being like this, this post-traumatic, quote-unquote, experience, it was like a post-incredible like incredible well-being mm -hmm. type of experience that seemed like as deeply wired. I, again, I can't remember. He had a phrase for it. He had a but I can't remember the phrase. 
that he used. That was a long time ago, and you know, it was like one week in class or whatever. But I never forgot that because I was seeing the same thing by that point in research interviews, right? I mean, some people would spend 50 years meditating in some you know, specific tradition or whatever to get to X, Y, or Z. Uh, and another person would, be, would have done nothing, and it seemed to have just kind of come on them out of the blue. Right, or they had tried, they had done a series of practices for you know two weeks, a year, or whatever else, and it had and it just bam, right? It just hit them. Yeah, there's an there's an esoteric explanation for that. Past lives, you know, it's like we didn't just start out in this life with a tabla rasa. We've been, you know, going at this for a long time, and uh, some people are born, you know, very close to enlightenment. Other people have a, a long schlag to go through <laughs> before they're gonna, you know, get to that point. Right, and I mean Peter Fenwick and Pim Van Lommel and all the people who do research and that kind of the UVA guys and all of that. Uh, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff on death and yeah. sort of post-death stuff or whatever. But the thing that the thing that I think is neat about the, the just to borrow the example from Tao is that it really shows that there are these precedents out there for rapid, immediate, deep, persistent, hard to get rid of reorganization in your brain that can be studied neurologically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's, I, I think that it just shows that that capacity is absolutely there and that people that make those kinds of representations. Now, you know, maybe you, we can talk about the locations. I know you want to get to that. Uh, so maybe you like go and maybe you're in like location four, for instance, you know, which is just one of our classifications, which is kind of a, a far sort of classification. Maybe you're in location four, and maybe you and maybe you just jumped right into location four. Um, and you know there are people that you've interviewed on the show that have done that. You mentioned one of them earlier, uh, actually. Um, Gary Weber talks about basically his jump straight yeah. into uh, location four, and then he since says that he's progressed beyond that. Uh, and so there's. So there's a deep and and there was a guy who I mean you couldn't I'm not sure it's possible to know more about Ramana Maharshi uh, than Gary Weber I mean he was just like freaking learned scant Sanskrit and, did he I mean he's just he really you know he has a, he had a PhD in like chemical engineering or something from Penn he has a brilliant first class mind and he really applied that mind on mm. his spiritual path um, and so you know I think you you have to say if he says he got to X he's really well studied and learned and experienced and has had a lot of awesome teachers and you know has done everything he can over decades you can't it's hard to dissuade it's hard to say no you you didn't get to x uh, well i'm not saying i'm not saying he didn't you know right no he's yeah. one of those people who's like sort of a good example of someone who's like uber qualified to yeah. sort of self-diagnose his own state of consciousness we have an advantage right i have an advantage when i sit down with somebody like gary weber um i have a question bank Right? I have a series of questions that we don't make public that you don't know the right answer to and that aren't published anywhere. It's not a, you don't find it in any tradition. It's cognition, affect, perception, and memory, right? You either tell me the same thing that a lot of other people have told me in, you know, to fit into one of these classifications or you don't. Mm -hmm. And there, there's no you can't have learned it in a book. <laughs> Uh, because there's, it, and I've been very careful not to talk about most of that, not to write most of that up. Uh, because I don't want you to be able to fool me, 
and so that's how I get to data validity when I sit down with someone like Gary. But I also accept that he can get to that validity, you know, internally on his own, just from his decades of crazy obsessive learning about it. You know. Yeah. And one point I would throw in is that I think if a person is sincere, they don't want to fool themselves either. Um, exactly. You know, it's like. I'd much. I'd rather err on the side of considering myself less enlightened than I may possibly be, rather totally. than more, uh, because you know, I, I, if you're sincere about this, you you want the real McCoy. You know, you don't want. You're not going to settle for some concept or some mood or or anything else. You want the genuine article. Um, totally. So there's no harm in being a little skeptical about even one's own experience. You yeah, know, and I, which is not to say wallow in doubt because doubt can be a sea anchor on, on your progress, but to just sort of be scientific and realistic about it. And that's another change I think we're seeing in this whole landscape. Uh, you know, there was, I would, um, let's, let me think of a good example. Um, so if you think about someone like Bernadette Roberts, who's mm -hmm. maybe one of the greatest Christian contemplatives who's alive, uh, she followed a very specific path to what is really the end of the Christian mystical tradition, right? As far as you can go in the Christian mystical tradition, which we would put basically in location three in our classification system. And I promise we'll get to these locations. But then after a period of time, something happened and she fell off the end of location three into location four. And location four, as we'll talk about, is completely different than location three. And she was lost for a period of, I mean, there were no books, there were no writings, there wasn't, you know, nobody who came before her, if they transitioned to location four that she could find, had any map to help her out. So she had, she really felt, if you would have talked to her and location three, right, just before the transition to location four, she would have sworn up and down and sideways and backwards that, you know, she had hit it, that this was as far as you could go, you know, that this was maximum union with the divine, the, the whole bit, right? And then she just has this massive, and you could even say traumatic event of a transition to location four. And she then has to spend decades, in essence, contextualizing. And rather than like saying, okay, well, I'm going to, let's forget about Jesus and let's forget about Mary and let's forget about sort of the Catholic tradition and all of that. She's, she keeps her intense Catholic dogmatism She's an extremely dogmatic conservative Catholic. And she somehow shoehorns the location for experience into the symbol set and the dogma of Catholicism, of conservative Catholicism, right? And so now when you talk to her, if you know, in location three, if you would have said, you know, she, God's love is always there, you know, she's like talking, you know, that type of thing, right? If you say in location four, well, what about God's love? She's like, oh, God's love is still always there. Okay, but you don't experience any emotion in location four, right? Well, no, no, I don't experience any emotions. Okay, but you just said God's love is still there. That's an emotion, isn't it? Like, what do you mean by God's love? And she'll gesture down to like her lower abdomen and she'll say, well, there's this force that I feel that is like constantly coming from here. And she sort of pushes out with her hands, and that is how she has redefined God's love hmm. to her, is this sort of persistent energetic feeling that is coming from her lower abdomen. 
because it's always there, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Like God's love was always there in, you know, the previous location to experience. And But you're like, you know, okay, but how would you have defined it before? You know, was it, is that how you would have, oh, no, no. It was like, yeah. was the divine and love. And, what you just said okay. reminds me of a useful metaphor, which is like if you're going up a building to higher and higher floors, at each floor, if you get up there and look out the window, you, say, you, you see what you saw at the lower floors, but the, you, then you then see more. And so you could say, yeah, I see what I saw. I, I can understand from the, f- the fourth floor perspective, and, and now I'm at the sixth floor, and I have a wider perspective, and the fourth floor is contained within that. Before you respond to that, someone has sent in a question which enables us to segue into what we want to talk about. <laughs> Anne-Marie Fitzgerald from Coral de Tierra, California, asks, as per Jeffrey's research and book, for those of us who haven't read the book, could you please define the four states he talks about and the techniques, practices to achieve each state? But let's not take the entire rest of the interview to do that because there's a lot of other things we can do also. But let's, let's give us an a, a overview of that. Totally, yeah. And just to finish that last point real quick, mm-hmm. that it seems like... I mean, I think Bernadette would have been burned at the stake a couple oh, hundred yeah. years ago or something, yeah. right, for oh, suggesting yeah. location four. You and I would have had mobs of flaming torches at the door <laughs> by this point in the interview. <laughs> right, totally. Right. I would have been at a religious college. <laughs> there were only religious colleges. The German research model hadn't come in yet, right? Yeah. Uh, and I would have been like, yes, the, of course the Earth is the center of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't hurt me. <laughs> um, but... Now we live in this time where there's, a, there's the ability to have the smear. And so some people still have a very dogmatic viewpoint, uh, right? And they might, if they could have been the Bernadette that never went beyond location three, and they will doggedly say to you, no, location three is where it's at, right? However they call it, whatever they call it. Uh, location three is where it's at. It's the only correct one. None of the other ones are correct ones. Ordinarily, those people have only experienced one location. They landed right in location three. They've mm. stayed and they've deepened in location three. They felt a sense of deepening. They felt a sense of unfolding, but it's been within the context of location three. You come to them with location four, and they're like, that sounds like you're messed up. Mm. But we have so much shared experience now that it's harder to hold those dogmatic viewpoints. I think over time, and and you're seeing people have these odd transitions, like Bernadette, who thought she was done cooking, um, and before she falls off the end of her tradition, basically into this whole landscape that's a, really no kidding traumatic for her. When you you can just read her books and see the trauma, yeah, that's sorting through, right? And so, so an occupational benefit of what you and I are doing, it tends to ferret out any pockets of dogmatism we may have in us. You know, talking to this vast array of people. Yeah, it's great. I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so let me let me just quickly. I'll go through some stuff around the location. So we call we we basically had data cluster, right? It's all emergent data. I tried really, to try to do this without sounding too geeky. <laughs> I don't know if I can be geek, but I'll try. <laughs> um, so you're so, drinking Acme Geek Be Gone there, right? That's what's in that bottle? <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> um, I better take another swig of it. Yeah. I'm not sure I can drink enough of it. So. <laughs> so if you think about sitting down with someone and doing an interview with them, for instance, and collecting data from them off the gold standard measures and stuff like that. And, you know, you're, you're sitting there asking them about, okay, well, you know, you had – most people had a distinct transition in our earlier research. I would say it was basically like, it was very rough, uh, but not that rough, but it's not like down to the decimal point or something. 
It's like 70% of people roughly had some sort of instantaneous shift into onto what we would call the PNSE continuum, right? Maybe they landed in location one, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four. I've never met anybody who landed beyond four, which is why we focus a lot on the first four. And since there's a P in that phrase, persistent, you're saying that 70% of the people shifted into something which didn't go away. They didn't lose. Okay. Right. Yeah. Didn't go away. And so that, and then 30% of people kind of had a slower transition of kind of a fading into it, um, which could have been, you know, a couple of days or a day or something, uh, or it could have been months uh, even, where there was clear, there were some changes going on in them. And then eventually at some point in that process, they realize, oh, hey, wait a minute, I've had a transition or whatever. If you think about in your own interviews, uh, Tom Trainer, for instance, mm -hmm. I think he says, like he was standing in the middle of the street in Fairfield, Iowa or something and having a conversation about PNSE and it dawned on him that he was experiencing what he was talking about. And, but he had, but it wasn't like he had had some epiphany moment like a week before where he was like, you know, wow, I've made it. You know, there's a <laughs> transition that I've experienced. He's like, like having this conversation and like, wait a minute, I'm describing my own experience with, even though I'm using this third person story you know, mm -hmm. sort of thing. Uh, and so that's what I mean by a, by a transition. At some point, it just dawns on people that they got there and they seem to have just sort of phased into it. They don't have some moment that they can tell you about. That is the before and after where everything changed sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Sneaks so up like a thief in the night. Yeah, it was like 30, 70. So we had a lot of people, a lot of times- But just before we lose that point, I mean, I question the sort of, I mean, sure, when I learned to meditate, I, I, I underwent a big shift. Um, but, and I, if I, any time I chose to look at my experience, it was definitely better than it had been before I learned. And sure. yeah, at any point, I could look within myself and say to myself, yeah, I feel a lot better than I used to, profoundly so. But I wouldn't ascribe any ultimate significance to it or, you know, or wouldn't identify it as any sort of, you know, ultimate attainment. It's just a, a degree of improvement that is persistent, but better, you know? And so, so go on from there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I, you're not going to get any, any, any opinion upon me out of an ultimate state or, you know, this seems to me to be something that could be this continuum that just deepens yeah. that infinitum. And another thing is, you know, it can, you can kind of cruise along like that and everything's going well and then you get cancer or, you know, you, you get in a car accident or your child dies or something really serious happens and boom, you know, it's gone. Or the Russians capture you and start injecting you with weird drugs or, you know, whatever. They're, they're, yeah. So the question is, how stable is it and under what circumstances could it actually be lost? Right. Marshy used to talk about, you know, well, not even bringing him into it, but there have been plenty of enlightened, quote unquote, gurus who've come from the East and kind of fell flat on their fa faces in the West, you know, when surrounded by all the temptations that they never encountered before. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. And, and we can talk a little bit, if you want, at some point about how people do lose it. Yeah. Um, because I think there is this sense, oftentimes when people have a transition and it stays for, a, a, you know, a week, a month, three months, even years, people really have the sense that there's nothing that they can do to get rid you know, that there's nothing that's going to happen that can cause them to lose this. And I think one of the things that, that people who are interested in this should keep in mind is that this is, I think it's something very precious, 
right? I wouldn't have spent 10 years of 11 years or whatever of my life on it so far um, if I didn't think this was very precious, you know. I mean, we could all do a lot of other stuff with our time and our lives. Uh, and so this is what I think is, you know, a very significant way to help people. And if you think about, and so when I encounter that attitude is, is another one of those pervasive sort of dogmatic attitudes in some corners of this that, you know, once you have this transition, assuming it's been around for a while, it's just going to stick and you don't really have to do anything to nurture it. You don't really have to do anything to support it uh, or whatever else. And, you know, we just saw that that was absolutely not the case. You better cherish it. You know, there are the smart people or the people who make lifestyle changes, you know, around it and especially who reduce stress around it. And I think there are even some very controversial things like uh, we noticed the propensity towards divorce, for instance, and towards marital separation in this population. And it's in, when we would ask about that, it was almost always the same story. Uh, except for location four. For location four, it was sometimes like the person's spouse who just, you know, if you don't have emotion, you can't love somebody. If you don't, sometimes it's really important for the other person to feel loved. If they stop feeling loved, maybe they leave you kind of thing. So that's that's a location four type thing, right? But down from location four, three, two, one, lots of times what would happen, especially in location one, to a lesser extent in some of the other locations, also a little in location two, is, you know, you're nobody knows how to push your buttons like your parents and your spouse. Yeah, you know what Ram Dass said, don't you? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, if you think you're exactly. enlightened, go spend a week with your parents, right? Exactly. Like, <laughs> like the most famous phrase, right? Yeah. Which I think people don't take as seriously, maybe, as they could. And so one of the things that people notice is they have this persistent transition, right? And there's clear, I mean, there's clearly a significant change. But there's still a lot of psychological conditioning in the body, what Eckhart Tolle might call the pain body or whatever, you know, to be worked out. It hasn't, it hasn't extinguished yet. We, we, you know, behaviorism is a class of, psych, of psychology. It's basically a form of psychology. It's like the second wave or so of psychology, an early wave of psychology that is still completely relevant today. Pavlov's dog and the bell and all of that. You and I and everybody else are bundles of a huge amount of conditioning that we've picked up over the course of our lives. Mm -hmm. And so that can, you know, it's not like conditioning, a lot of conditioning does burn off with the transition of these various things, but certainly not all of it. And a lot of the deep stuff stays there and works its way out over what we think is about a seven year cycle in our data. And a lot uh, of it starts to really um, decondition or unstress, if you will, a lot more quickly once there has been an awakening. It's sort of like totally. the, the awakening serves as a solvent or something for a lot of this entrenched conditioning. Totally. But if you're in a tough relationship and you go home every night and your spouse is just living to push your buttons, you know, those types of people, it's not very long, even when there are young children involved and whatever else, it's not very long before they're like, wait a minute, you know, he or she goes to the mall. I'm in this amazing state. <laughs> you know, he or she comes home from the mall, starts pushing my buttons endlessly, and it kind of suppresses that a little bit. Mm. I don't want that to be suppressed. And so, you know, some people stick with it and they allow that deconditioning process and then they're happy that they stuck with it. They're often glad that they stuck with it. They, eventually that conditioning goes away. It extinguishes just like anything does with behaviorism, principles within psychology and whatnot. Other people are like, I'm getting my own place. See ya. Yeah. Um, and they're happy with their decision as well. Like both, it's the funny thing is like both of the research groups that you talk to, whichever of those categories they fall into, they're both fine with the decision. 
that they made. But that's a good example of uh, you know that type of thing. Yeah, I just want to throw something in here because a few times you've alluded to level four as being characterized by no emotions. And if that is true, by however you define level four, I would not consider that to be the end of a person's development because I can yeah. think of people whom I consider to probably be way beyond level four who very much have emotions. You know, take somebody like Ama, you know, and you see, you know, um, joy and sadness and anger and all sorts of emotions that she experiences very, very vividly. And yet you get the sense while you're watching her that um, her, pride, her predominant reality is way beyond that, that those are kind of like waves on the ocean and that there's this sort of vast rock-solid reality that is not emotional in its, in, in its nature. So in That's, that sense, you can yeah. say, well, she doesn't experience emotions, but emotions are still happening. Let me, let me address that just a little bit from two different perspectives, um, from our data, anyway, mm-hmm. for whatever it's worth. The first is that in location four, people can seem very emotional. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they can, I've had people storm out of restaurants on me. Without um, having paid the are, bill, right? You were stuck with it. Better, better thought. Did they? I don't remember. <laughs> I have tried to always pay the bill anyway, right? Because oh, okay. I was just super grateful that they yeah. weren't giving me even any of their time. I still am. But good question. Uh, that one, in one case, they drove, and I was a little worried that like they were just going to drive away and leave me. Mm-hmm. And so there can be outbursts of anger. There can be all the all of the expressions that you're talking about can can look like they're there from the outside. But then when you ask them, what are you, you know, it looks like you just, you know, it looks like you experienced whatever this, or it looks like you experienced that or whatever else. Um, they basically say, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't experiencing that. I was, I, I could see that expressing in the body. You know, I could see that expressing in the environment. I was watching that expression, uh, but I wasn't experiencing it. Yeah. And so there's, there's sort of that answer that you get really commonly in location four. And then after location four, there's a series of locations, five through roughly nine. And I'm pretty confident in the five through nine. I, I caveat that a little by saying roughly, but in my own mind, I think five through nine. And I think of those as like a, a category, if you will, of locations. And there's something interesting that happens after lo- location four is like this. It's, it's a very special place in a lot of ways. Some people get to location four and it sounds a lot like, you know, what Ramana Maharshi or somebody would talk about. And so they would be like, okay, this is it. I'm at the end. I'm staying here. Some people get there and it's just so alien. You know, if they were in location three, if you're Bernadette Roberts and you're in location three and you're maximally merged with the divine, then you're in location four and there's no divine. Uh, you're like, whoa, right? And so it can feel very alien and people can choose to go back. And there's a sort of a way that they've all developed, I've heard it again and again and again, to claw your way out of location four, back to location three, basically. Mm-hmm. I just you want know? to interject that, you know, Marshi talked about this. He said you can be in God consciousness and, and you know, enjoying the divine and everything, and then you start shifting into the next state, unity consciousness, and you feel like you're losing that divine, that divine experience. And it's like, oh, my God, what is this? You know, there's this discomfort. He said at that point, a, a good teacher is critical because the teacher can sort of reassure you and that, you know, something good is happening and just give you the confidence and dispel that doubt. 
I, I think absolutely. And of course, it's so hard to find that. It's so hard to find location for people mm -hmm. uh, and get them. To, if you don't, especially if you don't have the classification system and you're just sort of feeling around in the dark and you're not sure what comes out. So yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, a great system like that with an incredible teacher, uh, it's just, it's a huge impact. It's, yeah. it's hugely important to people. And I have just tremendous respect you know, for what was done inside of the, the whole TM move. It's incredible. All the research that's been done. I mean, Fred Travis and so many people that came before him there just doing outstanding. I just love their research. Mm. And the structures, the helping people to understand and contextualize where they're at, the, just, I mean, so much, that's just, that's one of those great systems uh, that's out there, right? Yeah. Let's pull a few threads together here because I've sort of I've sort of sidetracked you a few times. But so you're, we're talking about the first four locations, and you were just about to say something about five through nine. And right. we don't need to go into detailed nitty gritty criteria of each location or anything. But we're just kind of giving people. They can get more of that in your book. But we're just trying to give a general overview of this territory. You know. So continue on with that in mind. So. What's interesting is that I think of four primarily as a staging ground for what's beyond it. Mm -hmm. It's just so different than what comes before it, and it's much more like what can come after it. And so what I've noticed is that there's two paths. I was talking to um, John Yates not long ago, maybe a month ago, Kaldasa. Um, I don't know if you've interviewed him or not. No, I haven't. I don't think I know him. Um, but he's, he's got a great new, very influential book out, which the name of which I can't think of at the moment. But if you just look up Kaldasa, mm -hmm. it'll pop up. How do you spell that? C-U-L-D-A-S-A. -A. Okay. He was a former neuroscientist. Uh, I'll probably call him John because mm -hmm. uh, I think of him as like the neuroscientist, you know, John Yates or whatever, who's also attained for sure, you know, like some amazing... He's re he really gets a lot of the continuum, mm -hmm. and he has a, his book. People people really love about his book is that he's is that he kind of is able to clearly classify these different locations, not that different from what we did. He slices them a little thinner to help people make more incremental progress, and he has direct. You know, he's like, oh, if you're experiencing this, then you need to do this method mm. right now. And so people really appreciate like the precision sort of of what to do specifically at each thing or whatever. Anyway, so. As you can tell, I'm just sort of a general advocate for <laughs> the space and for people's work and stuff in general. Sure, yeah. There's so much amazing stuff out there. So beyond location four, one of the things that we were talking about is for John, beyond location four for him, uh, has brought a return to emotion and a, and a return to sort of the experience of emotion and, mm -hmm. a, and a very sort of human service-oriented perspective. You know, very much like a service to humanity sort of perspective. And that's one of the tracks that people seem to go down in later locations in terms of how they experience later locations. Yeah. But there's kind another like the track. happy Zen guy in the ox herding pictures, you know, riding the ox back into town to help the people with a big smile on his face. Yeah. So sort of that type of idea. Though that could also be a location three guy. Yeah. Then on the flip side, there's a continuation of that same sort of of emotionless direction and it seems like the people that take that emote that that sort of if you think well, I'll describe location for a little bit later just I'll do it next I'll describe locations really quickly next okay. but if you so when I do that if people think about location four and they think about just cranking that up even more 
that path in the locations beyond seems to be the path that that goes further like beyond location nine and so it seems like even like in locations five through nine there's these two different ways that you can experience them and i've often like wondered is that like relate to this bodhisattva idea of you know no i'm going to take the bodhisattva path i'm going to take the john yates path you know i'm going to take the service to or, or I'm, I'm not going to take that path right i'm not going to pledge to stick around and help everybody uh achieve pnsc right i'm going to go as far as i possibly can until i'm you know turning into a ball of light and there's rainbows in the sky and above my tibetan monastery or you know whatever the thing is right uh, and so I think that's a really interesting distinction that um, I don't get it a lot. I want to put it into this interview because I haven't gotten a lot of chance to talk about that in other places. And sometimes um, people, I, I, they'll, they'll, they'll communicate with me and they'll be like, you know, I don't feel like I'm just an extension of location four in the later locations. I remember location four. I went beyond it. Here's what, here's what happened. Here's what happened after that. Here's what happened after that. And it's all fits our data. Um, and they're confused because of, you know, maybe they think one of these two paths was the was the one that they should have hit and they hit the opposite one or something. Uh, so I just wanted to sort of interject that a little, especially since you were bringing up the emotion, because there is a path in five through nine that is a return in many ways to that emotion and where you can experience emotion again. And then there's a path where you just don't and you don't ever again. And that one seems to be the one where you're just, you're going to like the far, far reaches that very, you know, very few people but it's hard to see where those people are going to end up, you know, ultimately. Your model doesn't precisely match the TM model, but, but for the sake of illustrating this point we're talking about, there is a phase in that model where one has realized the self, but there's not much heart, and everything is kind of flat and emotionless. And then later on, the heart begins to blossom. And I think that might also correspond with the chakras in terms of... Uh, you know, there, there, there could be an awakening or enlivenment of one chakra, but maybe not the heart chakra and so on. It's interesting to consider these different models and maps and see how they match up. I don't know, just the whole, the, the profound devotion that some of the great sages seem to have displayed, like Ananda Maima and, and Ramakrishna and others. And if we presume that they have gone quite far through all the possible levels, it really doesn't seem like emotionlessness is characteristic of, of those higher levels of attainment, at least not in terms of the overt appearance of the person. You know, maybe on some deep, deep level within them, which is very even predominant, they're not experiencing a lot of emotion, but boy, they sure seem to be on the surface. Yeah, I hear you. I would say the people who really, in my experience, the people who really go even like beyond location nine, mm -hmm. just as an example, are not, they're not accessible. To whom? They're very, very hard to, the, the ones who have, that we've researched have uniformly reached out to us. Mm -hmm. I've never heard of them before. Uh, they're usually embedded in a tradition that has some sort of map that accommodates this and it's more esoteric forms and gets you there so they're usually living in very supported situations mm -hmm. where they don't have to do anything except you know go on 20-year retreats and stuff like that yeah. and so it's interesting because they're often those traditions have 
kind of rigorous models for like, okay, you're here, these, you know, your disciple, you have this many people that you teach, and you know, there's almost like a business structure to it hmm. of sorts. And these guys are like exempted from all of those structures. And it's almost a problem in a sense for some of those traditions because those people are so inaccessible hmm. that they're not even accessible to learn from in most cases. And it's been surprising to us. I don't even know how most of those people found us, uh, especially early in the research. You know, we would just get a ping out of the blue and we would find ourselves, you know, going to some completely remote place in most cases. Um, I mean, it was just, it's, it was, it's kind of, that whole part of this is a little surreal. Let me talk My about thought the on that, though, before you hold that yeah. thought just for a second, is that you know such people may be outliers, and in a more yeah. enlightened society, which, which we may be heading toward, they may be much more common. You know, it's just a matter of what's what's the norm and uh, where the where where the bell the, the main bulge of the bell curve is. You know, for sure. It's yeah. hard to imagine, like. I don't know. It's hard to imagine society functioning in any way. We were all there was a bunch of people that were in that place. You know, I mean, yeah, they it's, are. It's hardly functioning just, now, so I mean, it couldn't do worse. <laughs> that's true. Though we can all still eat, right? I mean, yeah. somebody's growing our food at least. I'm yeah. not entirely sure that would be true. Huh. Well, that, that the, brings uh, up an interesting point, and I don't want to sidetrack you. Is it, you seem to dis, to, to associate dysfunctionality with higher levels of consciousness at a certain point, and there may be something to that. I mean, I mentioned Ananda Maima. She was. They had to basically spoon feed her sometimes, or named Roly Baba. If they didn't keep an eye on him, he'd drop his blanket and wander off into the forest. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that's true of the very highest level of, of consciousness. But there seemed to be people in pretty high states who, who were pretty competent. You know, Christ, Shankara, you know, others who really kept an eye on things. And in some cases, even contemporary examples, people like Ama running big organizations. You know, so. Maybe it depends upon one's personal makeup and proclivities. Maybe it depends upon the degree to which one has integrated these higher states, and some never do. They just kind of, you know, marinate in some sublime state and never bother to integrate it with with the world, or just are, somehow aren't cosmically destined to. I don't know. Yeah, I do sense that. Um, when I was young, I worked in sports broadcasting. Mm -hmm. And uh, like in my late teens, in my teens, really, almost a lot of my teens, and a little bit into my early 20s, until I'd kind of done it all and then was a little bored with it and moved on. So I remember like the difference. But the, back then, just to date me, like the Chicago Bulls were the world champions again and again and again and again in basketball. Mm -hmm. And every now and then, you know, you would basically go and you would set up an arena with all the broadcast stuff, and then you would just sit around and wait for the thing to start, and then you'd tear it down, right? And lots of times while you were sitting around and waiting, you were just sitting in the stands, or, because you had to keep an eye on the gear, you didn't want $150,000 cameras and lenses and stuff walking off or anything like that. And so I got to play sports with a lot of world-class Athletes. Michael Jordan, right. people like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like until you've tried to play basketball mm -hmm. against Michael Jordan, you just really cannot appreciate the degree to which you will never be Michael Jordan. Right? Right. I, mean, I don't you could practice. I mean, there's nothing that I could have ever done 
to have, you know, become Michael Jordan. If I played plenty of basketball, you know, I'm 6'3", 6'4", right? And so I'm, I was on basketball. I played plenty of basketball. I would, could never possibly have. I, there, was, there was literally one time where we were just sort of on half the You would usually clear off when you got onto the court, right? But there was one time when, uh, when that wasn't the case, when, he, when they basically just took half the court and they let us stay on the other half of the court. And at one point, he, he's a good example. He actually came down and he just shot some baskets with us. And, you know, we, were, we had like little team set up uh, where I was on one team with a few people and there was another team. With, that team had a, had a person sort. So we're like, you know, well, you know, why don't you play on their team? <laughs> He's like the world's greatest basketball player. Why don't you play on that team, right? Um, The gall of it in hindsight is a little, but we were all pretty arrogant back then. Um, And so he's like, he's like, he's like, you know, why don't I just play against all of you? Yeah, that's that's what I thought you were going to say. And he just scored at will, you know, like we didn't get a single point. <laughs> it was humi- like the security people and the only ones in the, and the cleaning people in the stands getting the place ready, right? And they're just, they just stopped and are just openly laughing at us. I mean, it was just it was crazy, right? And I kind of think of that with some of these systems and some of these people that can sort of go to these really far, low, what seem like these really far locations. You know, it's, it's like, I, you know, there's only a handful, probably, of Michael Jordans that are out there. Fortunately, some of them are lucky enough to live in the right area of the world or something that they can be embedded in a system that can nurture that and can become a world champion basketball player, yeah. right? Or a world champion consciousness developer or, or whatever else. Um, but I don't think there's, you know, there's not that many Michael Jordans. Um, you yeah. can get really good. Right. I mean, you can win NBA championships and you can be really, really accomplished, but you're not going to be Michael Jordan. And so I, I kind of sort of have that view of, of those people. Yeah. And in the spiritual realm, you know, you can be pretty enlightened and stuff, but you're not going to be Jesus Christ or whoever, you know. Um, there's, there's a certain dharma you have to fulfill, a certain, you know, nervous system you were born into and, and so on. And... Um, you know, we're not all going to be sort of spiritual superstars. I don't think we're going to like really do justice to the all these different stages and levels and whatnot in the time that's remaining. And I don't know if it's really necessary to. We've, we've given a flavor that there's all these higher stages and states. And you know, it, I can go quick. I can be a bit very quick. All right, real real quick, so we can get onto some other stuff before we run out of time. They all have in common a change in what it feels like to do. Uh, to some degree, that's just about the only thing they all have in common. Mm-hmm. The, Say that one more time because your audio is breaking up a little bit as you were saying that. Uh, the one thing that they all have in common across the entire continuum is that there's, a, there's, some, there's an experience of a change in what it feels like to be you, what I call sense of self. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, they can vary significantly. From one to the next. So, like location one is what you might consider like the, the lowest location. I don't use levels because I don't necessarily want to imply a value hierarchy. All right, I don't want to. I don't want people to think, oh, location two is better than location one, or location three is better than location two, or or any of that. It can very much depend on what you're doing with your life at any given time. Like we talked about earlier, you know, it's really not appropriate for me to be like the guy who's sitting in a cave or a cell in a monastery or whatever else for 
decades not coming out, you know, coming out once every 10 or 15 years or something. I mean, yeah. Not, and in one of the chapters in your book, you speak about zooming in and zooming out. And uh, I like that, that metaphor. It's like, according to the needs of the situation, you might sort of focus down on this and, and kind of reside in this level and function there. Other times you don't need to, you can zoom out. And the, I, I would also add, when I was, I was thinking this when I was reading your book, that you can culture the ability to be zoomed in and out at the same time, and there's no conflict. You can be landing a 747 in a snowstorm and yet be cosmically you know, expanded and aware. Yeah, totally. So, the, so in location one, when someone transitions or lands or whatever in location one, I think the, the most significant bellwether of location one, uh, just to be really quick, you know, with these things and not get into too much detail. The most significant bellwether is really that for most of humanity, there is a sense that something's wrong. You know, there's, there's just, you have this sense that like something's wrong, right? I mean, if, and if anybody out there thinks that they're not in, you know, PNSE and that they don't think something is wrong, I would say, do you have goals? Because <laughs> if you have goals, it's probably because you think something's wrong. And so, you know, what is it that you're trying to fix or amend or whatever with the goals? So there's this sense, and we can talk about it evolutionarily and all of that, psychologically and all of that, but there's basically just this sense that you have that something, it's just, there's just something that's not right. And that, then, just, that, to, just to pick, yeah. pick on you there, I mean, you yeah. have goals, I have goals. You might, you might want to do a new study, you might want to write a book or something. It doesn't mean something's wrong, it just means there's something you'd like to accomplish. But if you don't, but I don't want to take up too much time on that. We can cut, we can slice that. I've, we can have a really good conversation around that and how it shows up at different locations. Okay. Uh, so let's just, for the most part, say that I'm talking about this in, the, in a normal person's view. Yeah, like I'll be empty and unhappy until I accomplish this goal. I, I can't live until I get the new Ferrari or whatever, or right, mar there's just marry this, yeah, this person. There's a sense that if I could only get X, then, then I'd things be complete. would be right. And you can get all the Xs in the world, but somehow you never get the... Is fulfillment for more than a little bit of time or right, whatever else. Right. Right? Just a kind of a fundamental discontentment. Yeah. Um, Which is temporarily assuaged by a, some little accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Or a major accomplishment. Or major, yeah. Like, um, like winning the presidency or something. <laughs> I'm sure he's already over it. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently so. Now the question is how do I, how do I make the UN into my company? <laughs> so the the interesting thing is that that, I think, is really, if there's a definition of the human condition that people just think, oh, that's just the human condition, that's probably a key chunk of it. And that changes in location one. You know, there isn't, that, that sense goes away. There's a sense that everything's fine. Um, you know, there's a sense that, and not just that everything's fine, but everything's fine as it is, essentially. You know, you may still have a goal to buy a certain car or whatever, because you had the goal, you know, a minute ago before you transitioned into location one. I mean, some of that conditioning stuff may not have burned off or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, now, if you don't get the car, it's not the end of the world like it was a minute ago. And so that goes to sort of a detachment, if you will, from certain forms of cognition and basically certain forms of thoughts and thinking, uh, stuff like that. And so there's a reduction in self-referential thought for most people, for a tiny percent of people, there's a huge increase in self-referential thought. Like their mind just gets full of thoughts, but the thoughts are not paid any attention to. It's just like, you know, there's maybe a background sound that someone can hear right now. And they're ignoring the sound, right? I mean, but it's always there. It's sort of, when there's an increase in thoughts, that's kind of what it becomes for people. 
Um, so, but in most cases, there's a significant reduction in self-referential thinking, and which is thoughts about you, basically, and you know, thoughts that relate in some way to you. So instead of thinking, you know, I have to go to the post office because um, that's a chore I have to do, right? I've got to get something in the mail to somebody because I said I'd get it in the mail to them or whatever. It's I have to go to the where am I going to park? What am I going to wear? You know, should I go at a certain time so that I meet such and such on the way? because I like that way that person makes me feel. It's just endless. Our, our minds are just almost entirely full of self-referential thoughts. And when those start to decline and they lose their power, people say things like, all my thoughts went away, <laughs> right? All their thoughts didn't go away. They're still else, but self-referential thinking taking a hit. All the unnecessary ones go away. <laughs> right, if you want to think of it that way, yeah. Yeah, mind becomes more efficient. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Mine becomes a lot more. There's a lot more space for stuff that's more, I don't know, that matters more mm -hmm. than whether or not Rick's going to like my color of shirt that I picked today. <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever I might have otherwise thought that I just didn't occur to me, right? So there's also a reduction in, uh, there's a rapid falling off of negative emotions as well compared to what was the case before. Uh, and so on the emotional component, there's a you know, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you're probably not following them for blocks, you know, riding their bumper and mm -hmm. any of that anymore. You may still have a reaction. You know, maybe you'll flip them off. But pretty much once that conditioning triggers and the neurochemistry, a few, you know, up to maybe 90 seconds, but probably just milliseconds, uh, fades in the body, it's gone. You know, you're not thinking, you know, hunt this guy down and show him that he almost hurt me and my baby in the car and whatever. Whatever you would have thought otherwise. Uh, and so then if you take that and you go into location two, so location one is actually dual. For your, I, we, don't, we don't have to get into dual, non-dual stuff because that can we can take a lot of time on that. But location one is really sort of dual um, and it matches in the other, like when I was talking to um, John Eglin, uh, who's a big sort of TM spokesperson. He had a great slide in one of his presentations that he was showing me over dinner one time. And he had broken up uh, sort of the four major uh, locations, levels, and TM into first one being dual, second one being non-dual, third one being dual, fourth one being non-dual, which fits exactly, mm -hmm. just in case I forget to say that later. Okay. Basically, our four locations as well. And so location one is essentially you're still dualistic reality and you have a mix of positive and negative emotions. Negative emotions are falling off more rapidly. You're in a, usually in a deconditioning process. The conditioning can trigger you more than it can in later locations. It can suppress the well-being a little bit more than it can in other locations. But you bounce back. You're very resilient, all of that. Location two, um, the mind continues to quiet. The self-referential thought continues to quiet. Your experience becomes increasingly positive in terms of emotionality. And usually if you land right in location two versus location one, you have a lot more conditioning that burns off in that process of that land. I just think of as neurocircuits being deactivated in the brain, like that. I mean, burning off sounds a little whatever. But I just think, you know, whatever the huge reorganization that's taken place in your brain, it's shut some stuff off that used to trigger you. And because there's just been this reorganization in your brain, it's gone in a different direction. But some stuff is still going to be there that triggers you, especially from spouses and... <laughs> and uh, parents, uh, and possibly siblings. And so you have a continuation of what you think about in location one, right? So there's continued quieting of the mind and the self-referential stuff. There's a, a continuing of um, the falling off more rapidly of negative emotions. You experience negative emotions a lot less. Uh, your emotionality starts to 
bias much more towards the positive, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And it's a dual location. It's a non-dual location. And then location three uh, is sort of what we said earlier, like a good way to think about it is if you think about what the end of the, the Christian mystical path is often described as and stuff like that. And of course, that's mirrored in a lot of other so many other traditions. Many traditions consider location three like the epitome of human experience. And so it's a single, it's often, it's basically a single emotion. It feels like you're experiencing a single emotion most of the time. That emotion has um, different facets to it, like a dispersonal or a divine love, joy, compassion, that type of thing. Uh, you know, if you could live in a community of location three people, you would definitely want to live in a, lo in a community of location three people. It's, that would just have to be amazing because they're just so wonderful, helpful, and loving, and caring, and all of that. Not a place that you necessarily want to run a company from, uh, all right, because you just give away the store. And so, you know, these locations, that's why, I, that's why I call them locations and not levels, right? They're good for some things, not good for others. I totally want to live around a bunch of location three people, but I don't want to invest my money in a company run. Uh, so if you think about location three, you have this this sort of this experience. The mind quiets more. Uh, it can your your experience of the divine doesn't have to be there. You can also have kind of a panpsychist experience, and so it can just feel like sort of everything is conscious. You feel a sense of union or merger increasingly with that, uh, which is where that duality sort of sneaks its way back in. It's very subtle. The duality is very very subtle. Um, but it's there, you know, if you think you don't, you, you don't think about I'm merging with that if you're non-dual, <laughs> right? Uh, but there is this clear sense of, you know, merged with the divine, merged with everything that's conscious and you're merged with everything that's conscious or, so, you know, whatever else. And there's a deepening that could occur in terms of that degree of merger and whatnot. And then location four, uh, basically it's all different. The last vestige of emotion, that last falls away any sense of divinity or insight uh, typically falls away there's this your sense of you had agency at these locations up in different ways that's a complicated topic but in location four you just swear like there's no agency meaning everything's running on automatic and you're not the, you're not the decider there's no decision that you can I mean, you can't make a decision you're so like, George yeah, Bush definitely wasn't in that state because he said he was the decider yeah so there's changes that occur it's a very different kind of state and people people describe it as feeling very alien yeah until they get used to it in that state because it's funny you know when you experience it I remember the first time I experienced it and it was really interesting I of course have all of this knowledge about it right before I experience it and so it's fascinating to me and I'm analyzing it and all of that while I'm in it a little bit or I'm watching my brain analyze it I should say I didn't really feel like I was doing anything but I could feel my brain sort of analyzing it and then you know but there's this sense that people were coming to me and they were wanting to I was in a busy environment people were coming to me and I was they were wanting to have these conversations and I just couldn't possibly have been less interested in their conversations. And what it felt like, and I heard it described many times, but I hadn't really understood it, is that there's only so much energy. I think of it again, you know, please excuse my psychology and neuroscience viewpoint on this, right? But I think of it as there being only so much energy available to your brain at any given time. And it takes an enormous amount of energy in our brain to process symbolic language. Hmm. Right? That's, of course, how people are talking to you. Right? They're not telepathically communicating with you or whatever. Like, they're wanting to talk to you. And you don't mind talking to people. Like, 
I could talk all day to you, right? And that wouldn't, that'd be no big deal at all because we're not wasting our words on stuff that doesn't seem, you know, like it's, it's just, it, it's fine. But when someone's coming to you and they're just wanting, they're just doing their normal social approval stuff right. or they're talking about sort of the normal mundane bullshit that people often talk about just to sort of maintain social relationships with each other, you don't have a lot of tolerance for it. Mm. And it's because you're like, I don't want it, I don't want that energy in my, like it's so much better when the energy's over here being used for this experience, right? Yeah. Like, why would I want my, why would I want to drain it off to have this conversation? This is not valuable. Uh, and so that's roughly one, two, three, four. Okay. So, um, you know, I, so a lot of times when I do these interviews, and this, this is no exception, I sort of wish we could just sit and read the whole book together and then stop and discuss each point as we read it. But then it would take like a week to do the interview, and that's really not the point of an interview. <laughs> it has to kind of be a snapshot. And, and I do, in fact, have like about eight or nine pages of notes here that I took while reading your book. But in any case, we need to wrap it up. And uh, you haven't really talked about the Finders course, so um, why don't you just take a couple minutes at most to, you've tried to distill all of this knowledge into a practical thing that people could do to actually you know, have these experiences, and you call that the Finders course. So why don't you just explain a little bit what that is? Right. To me, the Finders course is an experiment. It's a crowdsourced, crowdfunded uh, experiment because nobody funds this stuff, you know. Really, but people do pay for it if they take the course. Exactly. That's what I mean by crowdfunded. Oh, okay. Uh, it's basically a way that we've been able to fund a lot of research in mm -hmm. recent years without me having to keep dipping into my bank account endlessly for another <laughs> decade. Yeah. Which has been really nice, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm super grateful for that. Because uh, there's not like, and I, you know, the National Institutes of Health is not like, hey, is that, that guy studying PNSC, let's give him a few million dollars. Yeah. There's just no money for this, you know. So unless you want to study addiction or PTSD or something mm -hmm. and meditation or whatever, which is not my focus. So to me, it's an experiment. Basically, the day came, I thought forever that we would solve this with uh, technology, you know, that like... Literally, I have all these transformative technologies around here. Like, this is a brain zapper. I see it. And, like, this is the, you've probably heard of the God helmet. Oh, yeah. God. Mm -hmm. And stuff like that, right? And, and the other neurofeedback technologies, like this is a muse, for instance. And so I thought technology was how we would solve this first and foremost. But when we got some of the early fMRI results back and stuff like that, the regions were too deep in the brain. You couldn't get to them with these surfacey consumer technologies. Uh, and I really was not happy with our data set at that point. I was very happy with like the continuum and all that. It was all consistent. I was fine with all that. But I wanted to know who were these people before their transition, right? Because if I say, hey, Rick, you know, who were you three years ago? Or who were you 30 years ago? Can you precisely describe for me who you were 30 years ago, right? I mean, you can't possibly do that, right? I can't describe who I was last week, probably, very accurately. <laughs> And so, you, and so, although we would always ask them, what were you like before, you know, I knew that I couldn't trust that data, really, except in very broad strokes. And I, you know, I want the data. Like, I want to know what changes before and after. And so we needed some way to do that. And I thought we would do it with zapper, brain zappers or whatever. But that didn't work out because of the deep regions in the brain and stuff. Not only deep, but I think that, you know, what we're dealing with is so much more complex than, than a brain zapper. You know, the brain is so sophisticated, we don't really understand what's going on. And, and there's, a, there's a profound we could say divine intelligence orchestrating this universe that I think 
uh, is moving everything along in an evolutionary way to higher and higher states of realization. And we don't even fully understand what a single neuron is or exactly how it functions. That, that profound intelligence can, can orchestrate and coordinate the functioning of trillions of them. And um, sure. and it is doing what it needs to do if we cooperate with it to bring about the sorts of changes necessary in order to for enlightenment to be realized. Uh, but some sure. crude little device like a helmet is is kind of a joke compared to what's what really needs to take place. I, I just had a little faith that that intelligence could give us a helmet. <laughs> 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 or whatever, right? They would give us some tool that we could just push a button. Yeah. Uh, you know, we just get humanity to the point where, like, it would provide the button, right? Uh, but anyway, long story short, like, that's not going to happen soon. No. Uh, and so we basically, we, I, I, I'd ignored the, a lot of the, we collect so much data and we can only process so much of it, right? While I was with people, I wanted to collect everything I could. And one of the things that we asked on people's intakes form, intake forms were, what worked for you? Mm-hmm. So when it was clear that technology wasn't going to get us there, which was right around that 2009-2010 time frame, we went back and we, we looked at that question on people's intake documents for the research. And it turned out that there was only a relatively limited number of things that people answered. Uh, and so we started screwing around with them. And we basically got to a certain sequence of them. Some of them produced dark nights which are intense emotional periods that can last even for decades, negative emotional periods and stuff. And so we had to kind of spend a year or so engineering our way around the dark night problem with some of the methods. And so anyway, what we wound up with was this cocktail that we felt you could ethically use in research and get approved by IRBs and stuff. Uh, that could that would that had a certain before and after. And originally, I mean, it worked on me. It worked in a onesie twosie way. Um, on people, but we didn't know if it would really work on groups, and so I didn't expect it to actually work on groups. I'm one thing that I think is important to realize about me is that I'm almost always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like all of the things that I thought were going to be true turned out not to be true. Pretty much the opposite of that, you know, yeah. whatever else. And so it was the same with this. Like I set up the pilot experiment for the first group of people using the protocol. Uh, with longitudinal data collection for two years and very little data, very little research resolution in the early part of the program. And then over the course of the 12 weeks or whatever the first one was, uh, the protocol is like 17 weeks now. Uh, but back then, I think it was like 12 weeks or 14 weeks maybe. It's been a long time ago now. The Basically, of the six people that we took in, we took in six because we had we took in the number that we thought if they all went crazy, we could psychologically support ethically. Uh, no way of knowing what was going to happen. Nobody had ever tried something like that before. And so it was all ethically driven, essentially. Uh, so of those six people, one of them dropped out towards the end. So five of them completed it successfully. And, and all of them were reporting this transition to what I call now ongoing non-symbolic experience because persistence means you've been in it for more than a year, mm-hmm. you know, on an ongoing basis. And I defined that term a long time ago. So I needed a new term for these people now that we're in the research that hadn't been in it for a year. So I just called it ongoing non-symbolic experience. So when you see ongoing and persistent, that's this. Is the right. Short term, long term. And I didn't believe them, you know. I mean, these people, I mean, I really grilled them. They really had to sit through, like, intense research interviews with me because I just I personally couldn't believe that you could put people through 
you know, 12 or 14 week or whatever it wound up being uh, protocol, even though I'd seen it work on an individual onesie twosie basis in the previous year or year and a half or so. I don't know. I just, I just, I just found it improbable. And so I just, I grilled. The, I mean, I kind of, in a way, feel bad. I grilled those people so hard. They're very nice people, of course, but yeah. <laughs> they're patient with me and all of that. And so, you know, right away we wanted to run another one because we wanted to see, and, and everybody turned out. Yeah, it was, we got, we, I was comfortable running more people. Through it. And so, in subsequent finders courses, we basically ran about sixty people mm-hmm. through one. And it had the same, it had roughly the same effect. It wasn't a hundred percent rate like the first one was. We would settled in somewhere around 72, 73% of people report ongoing non-alcoholic experience on the other. And about 1% of people report absolutely nothing. And some of those people don't even have an increase in well-being. All of the positive psychology interventions before, all the presentation and stuff that was drawn from the earlier research and stuff in that protocol, I mean, they don't even increase in well-being, which is, those people, as you might imagine, as a scientist, are the most interesting ones to me. And then the rest experience, you know, temporary versions of it, have a peak experience, or they might be in it for a week or something. Uh, but it doesn't become an ongoing thing for them. And some of the temporary people transition after the fact and get in touch with us. And some of the people who report ongoing non-symbolic experience and were maybe in it for weeks and weeks in the course, in the protocol, report falling you know, it's uh, we didn't do a lot of we didn't do a, we didn't do ourselves any favors initially. We just kind of stopped and didn't provide people with any guidance after they were done with the protocol, and people would just sort of return to their old habit patterns in their lives and stuff like that. And as we talked about earlier, you've got to treat this well. Yeah. So now the course is not being taught by you anymore. It's being taught by something called the Willow Group. And does it provide ongoing guidance? Uh, we hired Willow to basically handle all the registration and stuff because, uh-huh. I mean, we're a lab. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to run a course. Right. But the crowdfunding thing works out really, really well to get subjects and to get the thing to pay for itself. And you're still going to be offering more finders courses? We're doing one right now that uses stuff like this. Um, it's the first time we're connecting the biometric data. So this uh-huh. is like this headband. It goes on your head like this. Oh, uh, cool. And this is a heart strap. Uh, uh-huh. So you put it around your upper ch- your chest, right under your, sort of right under your nipples. Uh-huh. And this, which is, um, this is a GSR device. And you stick these two electrodes, basically just like this, onto uh-huh. your lips. So you and get kind of like biofeedback on what's going on. Yeah, it gives you a very accurate read of the sympathetic nervous system. We didn't run a finder's course for about a year because the psychological data was solid and I just didn't need any more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, uh, actually, a mutual friend of ours, Deepak Chopra, he's been on me for a while, like, about collecting more physiological data. And he really is a doctor. You know, he's oh, like he an MD. Endocrinologist. He's physiological yeah. data. Mm-hmm. And finally, I thought, well, there's enough of these consumer devices there and there's a company called Neuromore that makes a pretty good app that can stitch them all together. So let's run another. So we ran FC9 about four months ago or so. We just started FC10 Saturday, but I can never. I assume we'll keep running them. I assume you know that we'll keep collecting data and stuff. But I I can never promise that because <laughs> for a whole year I didn't run one because we just couldn't think of more data that we needed on it. So let's say this. I could um, 
I could ask you a million questions about the finder's course. I could, I could spend another four hours bringing up points that, uh, you know, that I took note of when I was in your book. But that's really not the point of an interview. The interview really has to be a bit of a snapshot. So let's say we've given people enough of a taste and they have a feeling, you're, you, you have been writing a book, it'll be coming out pretty soon, you've got a website, the fi- there's a finder's course website, I'll be linking to that stuff, and if people are intrigued by all this, they can find out more, you know, they can get your book, they can read your website, they can uh, possibly enroll in the, in the next finder's course if you offer one, and we'll call it a day, because I, I really love talking to you, but we probably should wrap it up. I don't know when the book will come out. Will I use it in the Finder's course, halfway through the Finder's course? Yeah. Um, it's in pretty good shape. I, I've just been reading it and enjoying it. Yeah. I sent okay. you an email with a bunch of typos that I found in it. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. every time I run a Finder's course, I ask people to find the typos, and people are still finding them. Right? Yeah. It's crazy. So the best place, really, for information for right now mm-hmm. is Finder's Course stuff is at finderscourse.com. They can get on that mailing list and mm-hmm. you know they can get notified yep. uh, if later ones run and stuff. But the, the information, where they can really get the information, is on the Core Center's website, which is at nonsymbolic.org. And on the publications page, there's, all, there's like this summary paper, which is a little dated. Uh, location 1 is a little, I would say, Location 1 a little differently now than I did in that paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just haven't updated it yet. Okay. Uh, I'll be linking yeah. to all this stuff. Videos and interviews. And yeah, you got tons of stuff. Data yeah. presentations from academic conferences where we dig into the minutia of all the right. statistics, this and that. And so that's the place. That's okay. basically the place. And as usual, I'll link but to all that. interview at the absolute top of it, I've waited so long. I just knew that you were going to deliver a great interview because of your perspective. It's very rare. You know, ordinarily, you're like interviewing with people who don't know what the heck they're, you know, this, mm-hmm. any of this is. Uh, so I'm going to stick you right at the top with Jeffrey Mishlow, who did a pretty good interview okay. of me recently, too. Well, you're, uh, you were very patient, and you actually never asked me for an interview, but I think we both sort of know, knew that we were going to do one eventually, and I just kind of felt like, all right, let's do it. And uh, so and you were available, and I appreciate your flexibility on doing it on relatively short notice. Not that you needed to prepare. Well, I appreciate all that you bring to it. You know, yeah. you ask the good questions, you have the perspective. You, you don't know how valuable that is. You know? oh, Maybe thanks. you do. I hope you do. Yeah. I hope you realize how much we all appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate your appreciation. Oops, infinite feedback loop. <laughs> all righty, so uh, let's wrap it up then. It's, it's really been a joy talking to you, and I'm sure I'll see you again soon, probably in October, October out at Sand, if not sooner. And uh, as usual, I'll link to all the stuff uh, you know on your various websites. That, that I've already said that three times. Irene's reminding me. Um, so let me just make a couple of general wrap-up points. One general wrap-up point, which is that if, if people would like to know more about my show, go to batgap.com. B-A-T-G-A-P. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel, and YouTube will remind you whenever a new interview is posted. Otherwise, go to Batgap, and there's a kind of a what, what do we call it again? Essential. Highlights? At a glance. At a glance. There's an at a glance menu which we put together last week that kind of summarizes everything that's on the site and links to it. So that'd be a good place to start. So thank you for listening or watching. And thank you, Jeffrey. And we'll see you next time, everybody.